Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep, deep in perdition. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the April 11, 2018 broadcast in our sixth season, National Poetry Month. On this day in history, in 1881, Spelman College, an institution sponsored by John D. Rockefeller's family, opened for Negro women in Atlanta, Georgia. It became the Radcliffe and Sarah Lawrence of Negro education. In 1865, President Lincoln recommended suffrage for black veterans and blacks. And on April 12th of 1862, the Civil War began at Fort Sumter, Charleston, South Carolina in 1861. It would eventually birthed the largest organized armed rebellion of enslaved Africans in U.S. history. Our guest tonight is Dr. Mustafa Ansari. 
He is the founder of the American Institute of Human Rights. He is also an international law professor, a political science professor, and a criminal justice professor with 37 years of accomplishments in legal education and personal management. He is the author of Afro-Descendants in the United States, pending publication, Afro-Descendants Confederation, Legal, Political, and Economic Considerations, a New Political Design, Afro-Descendants Human Rights, the Framework for Self-Determination. Dr. Mustafa Ansari has made multiple radio and TV appearances, including Press TV Iran. Today, he's on New Abolitionist Radio. During the Slave Catcher Chronicles, we have received a video of KS, uh, KCSO Sheriff Donnie Youngblood, the sheriff of a California county with an outsized number of police shootings, once said that it was better financially to kill suspects than wound them. We'll let you hear it for yourself. Then another video has been produced by CBS4 News, where a test study was done across more than a dozen police stations in California. It's correctly titled, Proof Police Departments Are Corrupt. We'll listen to some of it and break it down. As you know, I have a number of young men and women I've mentored over the years. This week, the sister of, of my, one of my mentees, Henry F. Henderson, who has been on our program before, Nia Malika Henderson. She's a senior political reporter for CNN, and she produced a viral video interview on the new lynching memorial, which rewrites American history. We'll play it tonight. The San Francisco Bayview newspaper has issued a Juneteenth call to action from Keith Malik Washington to all slavery abolitionists and anti-slavery activists nationwide. Then, in a clear violation of the Sixth Amendment, a sheriff says that there are 1,300 people right now who have been held for four years in Louisiana jails without a trial. We submit to you that it isn't just Louisiana. Attorneys gave closing arguments on April 9th in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi, concluding a five-week trial in Dockery uh, Hall class action lawsuit over conditions, conditions at the East Mississippi Correctional Facility in Meriden, Mississippi, which have been described as inhumane and unconstitutional, or as we like to say in Wakanda, crimes against humanity. Given time, we want to uncover the unfolding story of Devante Hart, his five siblings were murdered along with him, and then the Black Parkland students who say they are hurt that the white students went all the way to Chicago to talk to black students there when they were there at the same school and no one asked them anything. We also want to tell you about Jamal Trulove, who just won a $10 million suit against four SF police officers at San Francisco who framed him in a 2007 killing at the city's Sunnydale public housing complex. If you don't hear it tonight, grab the information from our Facebook page on New Abolitionist Radio or support our efforts by joining the BTR community and finding the links in our Abolitionist planning page. Our Abolitionist in profile tonight is Aaron Samuel, 1800 to 1865, Morristown, New Jersey educator, clergyman, temperance activist, abolitionist. Our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Cleveland Rural Sailor, who recently walked out of prison 15 years after he walked in. There's a twist to the story, and we'll tell you that tonight. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to 13th Amendment slavery from the perspective of slavery abolitionists. So let's get started. 
you got a question or a comment, you can call us at 704-802-5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com, Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Greetings. Man, Steve. that was a lot to say. There's so much going on, man. I'm sorry about it being long, but there's a lot going on. Oh, it was perfect, man. I mean, the purpose of this program is to share information. And as you have stated before, there's just too much information to share that we can't get it all out in a two-hour weekly broadcast. And that's why we post all the links to the different stories to the Facebook page and in BTR community. So I, that, I, I'm not complaining about the length of your intro. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Max. I'm I'm doing well. <laughs> Man, I thought something was wrong. I was just looking. Yeah, uh, um, I had myself muted. Sorry about that. Yeah, it was a it was a it's a lot going on this week, man. Yeah, I had myself muted. But Max, you know, check the chat room. Um, it seems like you're on a delay. It's like you're not you're not responding until like seconds after you know um i make a comment you're not responding until like seconds after you know um i make a comment um i don't know if it's the system i'm using today which is the uber conference call maybe i should try for my cell phone scotty do you think that would be better oh possibly we can try and uh see if that because you're you're on like a five second delay possibly we can try Okay, so let me uh, just start like this. There was something that you were involved in recently I, I wanted to hear about. So if you could talk about that uh, while I switch over, it would be great. But I'm, I mean that article that you wrote to the editors, and they ended up changing it. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll share that while you call back in. Um, what Max is speaking of oh, okay. is... An article was shared in BTR Community. Let me go to BTR Community. I need to go there anyway to pull up some of the stories that we'll be sharing with you tonight. Um, let me just get there right quick. I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to work through these issues that, that Max is having, these audio issues. It's kind of throwing me off. Uh, but let me get to btrcommunity.com. And um, I want to see if I can find the name of the website uh, because I was actually shocked that the editors of this website actually wrote me back and actually agreed with me. But I mean, if you're an objective person and you're just looking for the facts, there's no argument that the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. So. I can't find the article. It was like a couple of days ago right now, but it was about facts that aren't facts that Americans believe, you know, history facts that aren't facts. That's not the exact title, but they shared a whole lot of different information and they had a section on the Emancipation Proclamation and they correctly pointed out that the Emancipation Proclamation did not free a single enslaved victim. It, it just simply did not. It only applied to the states that were in rebellion. So that would have been your Confederate states of America. It only applied to those states. And it did not apply to states like Kentucky 
that enslaved people um, and still remained in the Union. So it didn't apply to them. So the the article, that section of the article correctly pointed out that the emancipation, that Americans falsely believe that the Emancipation Proclamation freed uh, victims of slavery. And, you know, that is, again, if you believe that, no shame on you. I'm not going to try to shame you and call you stupid or anything because millions and millions of people believe that. I actually was listening to a, a interview that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave uh, prior to his, you know, shortly before his assassination. And he mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation and, and saying that, you know, however many years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the Negro still isn't free. But he was saying it in the context that he believed it freed people. And so that article was correct or that section of the article, that entry was correct in stating that the Emancipation Proclamation did not free anyone. And Max has even done a video on Frederick Douglass saying, you know, calling it a stupendous fraud, um, being the well-read person that he was. Um, the only unfortunate thing about that is we can't seem to find any of his commentary on the fraud of the 13th Amendment. So well, actually, I have found that, Scotty, and I've done a video on that as well. Okay, well, I didn't know about that one. You're going to have to share that with us. If you don't mind, share it tonight. But uh, check this out, though. So, but the last paragraph of this of this entry in this article about things that people believe are facts that aren't facts, it said that slavery was not abolished until the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment of eighteen sixty five, and they even linked to the Thirteenth Amendment. And so, I read that. And I said, and I had just got through talking about on Tando Radio Show the days that I host hosted. I said, you know, you can't trust any sources these days. There's so much fake news out there. I said, you have to even fact check the fact checkers. So this was a fact checking article that I had to fact check, and so I, I sent a letter to the to the uh, provided email address and. Then a person wrote me back by the name of Micah. That was a good sign because that's the name of my first grandson is Micah. And Micah wrote me back and he said, you're exactly right. And we have edited that entry to reflect that slavery was never abolished. And they, they, it was just a small change, but that small change made all the difference in the world in correcting a, a, a incorrect entry. And they changed it to say that slavery was abolished unless you are convicted of crime and then it's back to the old ways for you. Max? Yes, yes, indeed, man. Uh, I, I found the video and I've already posted on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page if anybody wanted to hear that. But I thought I'd had played it here before. I, I can't be sure. But Frederick Douglass did give a speech about the 13th Amendment, and it was very much like the speech he had given denouncing the emancipation. A lot of people may not understand, may not know that because it seems to have been whitewashed from history while you talk about all his other speeches, but he denounced the emancipation and he denounced um, the 13th Amendment, both as frauds. And this was the man who was the helm of everything, really pushing this forward in something that was an international uh, uh, an, 
international program where people all over the world were working together. And he said this shit never happened. <laughs> that was Lincoln's last betrayal of the movement. Yes. Uh, for those that want to know what I'm talking about, you can go to, uh, I believe it's historyisaweapon.com and just look up Frederick Douglass's speech titled, titled I Denounced the So-Called Emancipation as a Stupendous Fraud. And if you want to hear uh, myself and several other poets recite it for the first time in history, along with uh, accompanying videos that show what exactly he was talking about as in today, uh, you can get that from our YouTube page, and I'll put it on the Facebook page. Another thing I wanted to mention before we get started in relation to Lincoln, when you was reading, you know, about him, uh, recommending suffrage, I had to look that up because I've heard the term before and you usually hear it in, in, in relation to women's suffrage and I wasn't sure, but I was correct. It is talking about the right to vote in public elections. So Lincoln did recommend that uh, black men, unfortunately, not everybody, but black men be given suffrage, which is the right to vote in elections. Now, he just didn't offer that up. I want it to be clear. You know, these white supremacists, like Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. And all of those black veterans, men, that just got through saving the union and, and, and putting down the re rebellion, which Max, again, correctly calls the largest uh, rebellion against slavery in U.S. history, the Civil War was, but they made those demands that, hey, we just saved this. This joint wouldn't even exist if not for us, and we want suffrage. We want the right to vote. That did not come till five years later in uh, 1870, and I want, in the form of the um, excuse me, man, I'm losing all my stuff, all my, it came in the form of the 15th Amendment. Let me just pull up the 15th Amendment, because I think the 15th Amendment also has implications in terms of something we were uh, discussing earlier today. So that would be the 15th Amendment, where it talks about U.S. citizens. Of course, it came after granting of victims of slavery, U.S. citizenship. So the 15th Amendment says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or bridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Uh, Section 2 says, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So, black men have had the right to vote constitutionally since 1789 okay I, I think that's when it was passed I, I saw something else that said 18 no that's not correct man these people are confusing me man the 15th amendment was actually passed in 1870 alright and so I feel like it still has applications today where it talks about previous condition of servitude as over the past couple of days, you know, Max posted something from one of our mutual friends who wanted to remain nameless because he didn't want to put any any of his comrades on a spot that he's working with. But he was talking about 
felony disenfranchisement. See, felony speaks to a previous condition of servitude. What is that servitude? 13th Amendment slavery, which says that involuntary servitude and slavery shall be abolished except as punishment for crime. So all of these people who are prevented from voting based on a felony slave status, that's in violation of the 15th Amendment. But yet we got all these constitutional scholars out there. They just don't seem to be picking up on this stuff, man. Max? I'm in agree with, agreement with you, Scotty, but it's going on 20 after. My answer was a little long, and there's still some things I want to talk about that have been going on uh, throughout the week that I want to, you know, share the information. So I'll try to do it throughout the show, but I think uh, our guest may be on the line, and if he's on, let's go ahead and get into that, and then we'll get the uh, No, our on. guest isn't. If our guest is listening, you can give us a call at 704-802-5056. 704 Oh, so he's not, and if you are on the line, remember to unmute your phone, or you can press star star to unmute on the uh, conference call line. All right, Scotty, so I'll take it he's not here yet. So um, one of the things that I did want to get into, Scotty, we talked about it on the show just happening just a little while ago, the Fanzo show, is uh, the dinner that I had yesterday, my wife and I, with some uh, brothers and sisters who have been... Uh, who are returning citizens from being in prison. And it was an event put together by Appleseed Legal Justice Center and also Working Future, a campaign led by JLUSA. And it was some uh, brilliant people. I mean, you know, what really got me the most, man, is that every time it's always the grassroots organizations that are doing the things that are the most important with very little help from our government or our state or our county. They said at one point that Greenville, South Carolina, uh, this month, has announced that it is Second Chance Month. And that's a really good thing. But it's just a framework, you know what I mean? There's nothing really behind it other than to use that, uh, to use the city of Greenville, South Carolina, as a way to convey a message, Uh, you know? I guess there's some value in that, but they could have did more, you know what I mean? Like the city council... Banning the box, perhaps? Yes. There's five cities in South Carolina where that's coming up on the ballot. You know, that's been happening, I believe, in 150 cities across 30 states to ban the ballot, ban the box. Uh, thing. So the five cities in South Carolina now, that's coming up on the ballot, which is awesome um, as well. And they're also working on, like, you know, uh, human rights uh, or prisoner rights for former incarcerated individuals' rights. And there's some wonderful they got out here. Uh, can you hear me, Scotty? Yes, Max, we hear you. Okay. I'm sorry about that. All right, so anyway, uh, I'm going to give you five examples of what they're working on. The first three are already in play, mind you, These, the, but the second two are something they're working on. The first one says civil contempt for failure to pay child support. Civil contempt is non-criminal. It should not be reported on slave reports, but it is often incorrectly p- reported. An applicant who accurately reports on a job application that they have no criminal record may be considered to be untruthful if SLED reports come back with civil contempt. And that's the first one. Then automatic removal of all dismissed or nulled press charges, expungement sealed for most uh, dismissed charges become automatic 
for charges occurring after June 2009, June 2nd, 2009. But individuals with dismissed charges prior to that date must apply for an expungement at no cost. They're talking about automatic expungements, Scotty, and I know Christopher Irvin has been working on that for years. That's a, that's a, a really good move forward. That's one of the things that's already in effect. The next one was automatic expungement sealing for all unclassified misdemeanors. Under current law, first offense unclassified misdemeanors that carry a penalty for of 30 days and or up to $1,000 in fine are eligible for an expungement after three years with no subsequent charges in the three-year period and a payment of a $310 fee. Those three things are already in effect. The tool we're working on now is automatic expungement sealing of drug possession charges after 10 years. SC's drug penalty enhancement law uses a 10-year look-back period. So a 10-year wait period with an automatic sealing would be the minimum for these drug charges under current law. Simple drug possession charges are only eligible for an expungement under our conditional discharge law. But pending legislation may change this. And uh, automatic expungement sealing for Class A, B, and C misdemeanors after 10 years. These charges are currently ineligible for an expungement. So those are the things that they're working on, Scotty. And according to Christopher Irvin, if we get this part right, uh, you know, the recidivism, we can reduce the prison population by 50% just doing that. Well, Max, I'm, I need some clarification for you. Are, are we talking about state legislation or federal legislation? Because while I applaud those uh, grassroots activists who work on the state level, and we have seen them, you know, have some victories and have some new victories, like, you know, the Colorado Amendment T ballot initiative to remove the slavery exception clause from Colorado state constitution. But these issues that you're talking about, we're seeing them in, you know, peace, it's like piecemeal. This should be federal legislation offered by federal federal legislatures, in my opinion. So I need some clarification. Are we talking about this uh, state, you know, uh, initiative, or are we talking about federal? We're talking about state initiatives, as Maryland is doing with Christopher Irving at the lead. This is South okay. Carolina doing the same thing. And I believe there are other states also doing the same thing. Well, you know, I certainly applaud the work of our abolitionist friend, in Baltimore, Mr. Christopher Irvin, and you know, but that is something looking down the road, we can use victories at the state level to push at the federal level. Hey Scott, you know what? I think it may be possible that our guest has the wrong information. I'm not, I'm not sure how or if that's the case, but I'm going to try to send him a direct link and, and email and see if maybe Just uh, send him the telephone number. Uh, yes, absolutely. And let me make sure that I've been giving it out right, because I've been reading it here every week. So we're talking about 704-802-5026, right, Scotty? Oh, no, it's, fi- yeah, you said five, no, it's 5056, Max. 5056. No wonder people have been like, well, we can't reach it, Max. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, Scotty, seven- uh, yeah, that was the thing that I, I want to go over, but... Can you talk for a second? And I want to uh, send this to me. All right. All right. Well, while Max tries to get our guest online, let me make sure y'all have the correct information. You could join us 
uh, via your computer, no matter where you are in the world, as long as you have a microphone and speakers to hear us, um, by going to uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. It won't cost you any money to dial in via your computer. You can also give us a call via phone to 704-802-5056. That's 704-802-5056. And we are on air tonight up until 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Um, On this program, we are discussing 21st century slavery and human trafficking. While we are as individuals concerned about all slavery and human trafficking, as I saw an article coming out about Donald Trump um, signing some legislation that is uh, aimed at curbing sexual trafficking, uh, which can be accurately described as sexual slavery. We, We are concerned about that. But our primary goal and mission is to end legalized slavery that has been constitutionalized by the 13th Amendment and being practiced through the prisons. Whether we're talking about public prisons or private prisons or public jails or private jails. And yes, there are privately owned jails out there. Max? Okay, uh, looks like uh, Max is still trying to take care of some things. So tonight, our guest, uh, Mr. Mustafa Ansari, is supposed to come on, and Max invited him on to talk about decolonization. I've done a little research on decolonization. Um, I was looking particularly at Indian tribes here in the United States, Native Americans, uh, and the conversation that I saw them having, they was like, well, what is decolonization? Well, it depends on your definition because people have different definitions for saying words. And that's a stickler of mine that I have often talked about is people use existing words, but use them without the proper context or without linking that word to the proper definition. And they make up their own definitions and that spreads confusion. So that's one of the first thing I noticed is that this indigenous act, um, excuse me, this Aborigine uh, activist was talking about where well, it depends on who you're talking to, uh, what the definition of decolonization is about. So Max invited him on to, to you know, speak about that and I think we got Max back on the line. Max, we have you. Yes, but I didn't hear a lot of what you were saying. I was communicating with the doctor, and indeed, I had given him the wrong number. So my apologies to everyone. Okay. Well, I was just talking, I was just setting up, you know, the program. You had invited him on to talk about decolonization, but you could do that better than I can. So it wouldn't hurt for you to uh, frame that in your own words. Yeah, he should be calling any moment now, so let me go ahead and start an introduction of him. Uh, Well, as I read in our intro tonight, it's Dr. Mustafa Ansari. He's the founder of the American Institute of Human Rights. He's also an international law professor, a political science professor, and a criminal justice professor. And he's been in this business for 36, 37 years working on this. Uh, From what my conversations with him has led me to understand that he's also uh, a black nationalist, and that he is working on trying to unify many of the disparate groups that are are working separately under one banner where we can use international laws 
in order to uh, create or to get our liberty and uh, in order to decolonize. I think he could explain it a lot better than I can. Uh, we had one conversation indeed, though. There are some things that I think we don't necessarily stand in the same lane at, but it's heading in much of the same direction. And uh, hopefully today he can tell us some of the things that he's been doing, particularly when it comes to things like reparations, because, you know, they've been working at the forefront of uh, reparations using models that have come from other uh, other peoples that have received reparations. So uh, I don't know. You can check and see if he's on the line yet. Uh, Greetings, Max. Yes, peace, peace, and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Dr. Mustafa Ansari. Uh, it's good to have you here, and I'm looking forward to this Thank conversation. You. you know, uh, we talked earlier today, and, you know, we're just trying to uh, find out where we could really cover tonight here on the program so, you know, our listeners can learn a few things and see a few things. Uh, one okay. of the things that stood out for me particularly was the fight for reparations. Uh, could you tell us uh, what's going on with that right now, where you're at, uh, any kind of a I guess, headway that has been made or potential headway? Uh, yes. Well, <clears throat> we're finally on the correct strategy to 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 do it because inter- reparations is a international pursuit. It concerns all of the countries of the world, and it's, and it causes the, um, especially in our case, we have a uh, recalcitrant uh, United States, the United States that doesn't want to, uh, give us reparations for the harms. So uh, and when, when that happens, uh, you engage the international courts. And and that's just a prelude because uh, the in order to gain or uh, be able to access the international courts right on a collective uh, harm, you have to have a collective body that has been identified. This is called standing under the law. This is the reason two reasons why reparations uh, lawsuits are directed to the wrong uh, court, as well as not constituting, not being able to represent the the people that are harmed, which um, those people have to give you consent under the law. So what we've done, <clears throat> um, and, if, and, and as, as, as most people have noticed, most of the collective harm payments go to countries, go to nations, go to identified people. So uh, uh, the Jewish reparations, the Japanese reparations, uh, the Indian reparations, they go to an identified people. Uh, the simple minority status of the United States that, that they gave, illegally gave to, to the African American has given us a anomalous status as almost so low as to be um, comparable to the immigrant status and and people who with uh, disabilities and and gay people are all in this uh, all have been put in a, a certain status. It's one of the lowest statuses of um, of citizenship. And when you're in that status, that real small minority status, it's difficult for you to access remedies. So because that's not our true status, um, what we found out is that the African a descendant, and I'm using that term to encompass all of the bloodlines that run through African Americans or African descendants, as we call them, Afro descendants. 
which is native uh, uh, blood, ancient uh, bloodlines of, of, of Indians that we merged with, uh, which were, as we found out through Dr. Ivan Van Sotoma, Dr. David M. Hotep, and others, were African, and then we found through the scientists as well. We did a really complete uh, search of the scientific evidence as to from from uh, using 12 different identifiers of of, of um, DNA, bones, artifacts, language, folklore, and mechanical iconic iconographical evidence to discover that the people called Indians in the in their original state, Aboriginal state, were African admixtures. So when, and we also found that uh, the importations from Africa during the fourth population wave of Africans to the Americas, three of them came before Columbus, that that was a very small, comparatively small grouping of 388,000 over 200 years of imported pure Africans from um, that last transatlantic slave trade. So what we found is that this combination of people, peoples and bloodlines as well as European bloodlines growing up distinctly on American soil has put us in the category of indigenous uh, people. And so what we have been able to do, our lawyers and our experts and, and the historians and every economists and all the peoples, disciplinary peoples that we work for, is we put together a, a, um, a structure called a confederation where we confederate all of those groups and groupings into a national state. And that in and of itself is reparative because when we talk about reparations, reparations doesn't always come from those who harmed you. They're the first phase is self-reparations, things that we can do ourselves to repair ourselves. And so one of the things that, in, in fact, the experts realize this, and so one of the first things in the international uh, declaration, excuse me, General Assembly Resolution 60 backslash 147, and I'm going to say that again because that's a, that's what that defines reparations, and it's about 28 different uh, definitions of of how a people can be repaired. And the first one is liberty, and the best thing that you can do to a slave. And we talked about slavery in that term earlier today, and I agree with you, is to liberate them. And so, because the United States gave us an identity, only only slave owners do that to slaves. Uh, you, uh, because a people can't, a foreign person or a foreign people can't name another people. So that uh, category, a simple minority, is just illegal for because of the lack of consent and our lack of social contract with the United States to accept that name. So under international law, what we've done as international lawyers and human rights defenders is to make that our first priority for for that reason and because of the fact that to repair us is probably going to be at least a billion dollars or more and the only way that we see to raise that billion dollars and be able to disperse it properly and be able to accept our reparations in, in that vehicle is through 
nationalization. And this is what Israel did when they received the 60 or so, $83 billion from Germany, is that they had Israel, and, and that $83 billion didn't go to people individually. Some of it did, um, but most of it went to the Israeli state, and that has made Israel a very powerful country. And this same process, and we have written a legal treatise on this issue called the process, civil rights to human rights. In this process, we build an infrastructure that is totally illegal. There's three legal ways to be a black nationalist or nationalize in, with the United States under international law that's totally legal and totally what the United States has accepted. The first one is to be another state. And most of the organization groups of black Indians and Moors and the Muslims that have confederated so far and are intending to confederate has uh, category, uh, uh, rejected the idea of, of, of asking the United States to be an additional state. Uh, the other one that was rejected was the Commonwealth. Uh, Commonwealth, we have four states that are Commonwealth, um, Kentucky, um, there's, uh, I think, one in Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut maybe, but there's four states that have a Commonwealth relationship with the United States, which is pretty syn uh, synonymous to being another state. And... Um, Confederates have rejected that because that was still would make us a minority and too much under the control of the United States Congress. What they have and what we have uh, suggested and what they have accepted up to this date was to be have a, what they call a free association relationship with the United States. This is a relationship that the, that the Marshall Islands has with the United States, um, Puerto Rico, is, is trying to uh, is in an anonymous between free association relationship and commonwealth that hasn't been settled. Uh, uh, the uh, Samoans, they are more, more likely in commonwealth situation. The, uh, uh, Port, uh, the uh, Virgin Islands, they're being decolonized, so they're in a decolonized relationship, decolonization mode with the United States. And with the um, Marshall Islands that has in, that has a free association in Guam, which is going through the throes now of trying to strengthen their independence by becoming a free association, uh, uh, have a free association with the relationship with the United States. This is the uh, other than just pure military force, which we don't have. This is the most. A reasonable and practical practical way to obtain and repair ourselves and have a dignified relationship in the United States with with the Americans that is a government to government relationship where we have our own areas the those areas have already been defined by the United States through segregation um, and most of most of those areas are the segregated areas of the cities. And, but we have a, a, a number of farmlands, uh, about 8 million acres of farmlands that uh, black uh, African descendants own in Georgia. We, we call it L.A., Lower uh, Alabama, uh, the Louisiana, Georgia, and Florida. There's a number there's, uh, in Mississippi and Alabama. So so those, those areas are the ones that we are... Uh, looking forward to repairing ourselves under.
if, if I may, Doctor, I'm sorry. I've got a number of questions that I'd like to ask, and maybe some of our callers would like to ask as well. And I sure. know there's a couple of questions that you and I had a discussion earlier, and you was like, you need to ask that later on the show too. <laughs> so I'd like to do that as well. No problem. Um, what you're saying, exactly. is this, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, these territories that have been allocated for us and those that uh, organizations like the uh, Republic of New Africa and the Five mm-hmm. State Solution are our version of the Balfour Declaration? Is that correct? Balfour? Yes, you know, the Balfour Declaration. No, the Balfour, that's, that doesn't concern us. That concerns the Palestinians. And that was the, that was the declaration, uh, by, I think, by Lord Balfour of, of Britain that gave the uh, Palestinian territories, uh, the, the Israeli, the Israelis uh, Palestinian, uh, Palestinian territory. So that isn't, that's not quite what we're talking about. We're talking about areas that are presently under our control, that, that have majority African-American populations, or in, I'm from Chicago, so in Chicago we have about 34% of the population that's mainly concentrated on the south and west side. So we will be talking about nationalizing the south and west side of Chicago, the city of Chicago, what that would mean for us, and this is the reason why we are looking at this very soberly, is that the city of Chicago obtains has a $6 billion budget uh, every year, yearly. So 34% of $6 billion would give us about uh, our territory, uh, the south and west side, it would allocate about $2.4 billion to the south and west side as our proportionate part of the uh, the city of Chicago's budget, in which we really are supposed to be entitled to under democracy. But because we don't control the democracy and the majority Caucasians in City Hall uh, controls the council and the old money controls the council, uh, the south and west side of Chicago obtain, get less than $800 million a year. And so with having a deficit by going by using that old strategy, simple minority strategy and and and, and playing the game that way, we are losing almost a, a billion uh, uh, almost a billion dollars a billion a billion plus some a billion plus six hundred thousand dollars a year annually in Chicago by using that by using their strategy and pitching off a little bit of money to our communities. And in, in essence, so we can build with the strategy of nationalizing our areas. If we nationalize our farmlands, then we're talking about we have the, enough farmlands to feed us uh, for generations. And we have enough money uh, coming in to uh, by subsidies. In fact, we're still American dual citizens. We still have enough federal and state subsidies as well as our own private enterprises are being able to be built uh, in all the periphery enterprises, trucking and, and wholesaling and reselling, grocery stores, old-time grocery stores, packaging. All of those industries we want to control so, uh, because that uh, gives us a, a, a great economic benefit. And as you know, we're suffering from tremendous and severe unemployment to the point that the prognostication is that by the year 2020, 2050 rather, 
that we would have a zero income because all of our, all of our businesses in all of the areas would have been nationalized, but not by us, but by the white nationalists and the white developers from City Hall and from their counterparts who now would be able to control the land and all of the enterprise would now be tied up into that realm and we would have a zero income. Well, we have decided uh, to change that um, diagram and that, and that storyline that they have for us by nationalizing. And and then we and we believe that we can convince the African descended people that they know what's best for them, uh, and that they would vote for uh, to confederate, and that they would confederate so that we have the combined power to be able to uh, control our economy and look out for ourselves and look out for our children. Um, uh, I, I, I have some we things have, that I would so like. So I want the opportunity for others to ask questions, like my sure. co-host Adi Reed. Yeah, I, I would like to, and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Mister Ansari. Um, Thanks so much. Just want to address some things that you said in your opening stage um, statement. Um, I kind of feel like that there are people out there that want to minimize. Uh, the number of Africans who were victims of the transatlantic slave trade. While it is true that only about 300,000, that's the highest figure I've ever seen because I, I am an extensive researcher on history. And um, so 300,000, the bulk of the victims of, of the transatlantic slave trade ended up in Brazil, um, excuse me, South right. America, and Absolutely. Central America, and 300,000 made it to these shores. Now, I w also want to point out that African-descended people, and I'm not even going to take it back to who was here first, but since the beginning of the colonization of North America, black people, African-descended people have been a part of that colonization, and not every last single one of them was an enslaved victim of, you know, of this human rights crime. Um, they fought in the revolution. They actually won the revolution once the uh, failed general, he was a terrible general, George Washington, vicious white supremacist slaver, uh, lifted his racist ban on these African descendant free people uh, serving in the Continental Army. Of course, he only did that because the British offered victims of slavery and any other African-descended person right, right. who would fight on their side offered them freedom. And they made Absolutely. good on, on those promises by relocating those people to, I believe it's British Columbia, but parts of Canada where those communities still exist today. Now, while that, while that 300,000 seems like a small number in relatively short time, that 300,000 grew into 5 million by the 1860 yeah. census. Okay, so that, that's a lot of people. Okay, that's more than anybody, any free black people that was listed in the census because I looked up that research because some people don't even acknowledge that there were free African descendant people who were counted as colonists and were, were citizens. Uh, some of the slave codes even mention these free black Afro-descendant people by stripping them of their gun rights. Um, that would be the Virginia slave codes. I'm not sure the exact mm -hmm. date that that was passed. So these, uh, so so black people have existed on this continent 
as long as anybody. Right. They right. has all, whether they was free or whether they was enslaved. So, but where I where I part ways with you is that the, your narrative seems like we didn't have a choice. They absolutely had a choice whether they wanted to fight in the revolution or not. Well, they, I'm not talking about fighting uh, that kind of choice. I'm talking about a citizenship choice. Well, and, that's and, what they were fighting for. Why, you know, they looked at themselves as citizens. They were counted in the census as citizens. Actually, I think it, I may be incorrect, Max. I may have your wife's ancestor, Paul Coffey, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, who was of African and Aboriginal uh, descent, who was enslaved, became free. And I, what, what was it that he fought for? Uh, he, he, filed a, he filed a lawsuit against the state, Max, is it Massachusetts, that he filed a lawsuit against in talking about taxation without representation. So these people were being taxed, and they saw themselves as citizens. Okay, they were the only thing was going on though was was racism, institutional racism. They were being taxed like first class citizens, but being treated less than. Okay, whether they were free or whether they were enslaved, and so. The all the Fourteenth Amendment did. It didn't. I've never seen any documents that call black people or Afro descended people minorities. It doesn't say that in the Constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment, which was uh, passed after the greatest rebellion against slavery on this continent, the Civil War, on the demands of those black veterans and and black citizens and the formerly enslaved. Um, the they had input into the Fourteenth Amendment, which granted citizenship to anybody. Why well, did not use race specific language? It granted citizenship to everyone who was born here in the United States. Then black men who were being denied the right to vote, as well as being taxed. Uh, without the full benefits of citizenship in the nation, those black men demanded after they saved the union that they be given the right to vote. And we were just earlier talking about the 15th Amendment in a different context where it said that, you know, the most important section to me talks about that you can't deny somebody uh, the right to vote based on their previous condition of servitude. They were talking about victims of slavery who had freed themselves and and you know along with free black people and saved the union saved yeah, the united I, I states think, of, of america I, may, I think you're obfuscating the no i'm not obfuscating i did not interrupt uh, you and, sir and i allowed you only, your time can you not interrupt me yeah but i, I i'm the um, you're supposed to be interviewing me. You're giving me a statement. Well, an uh, interview does that, not that, mean an uh, interview. So I thought you were Listen. going to ask me a question. Listen, I'm sorry to have to uh, mute you, Mr. Ansari, but we require mutual respect. An interview doesn't mean that you get to take up the time talking and putting out your statements. And then if we have another point of view, we don't get to offer those statements. That's not how it work on this program. If, if you listen to this program, it's a dialogue. Okay. We don't script questions. We didn't write down no questions to ask you. We don't, we don't work like that on, on this network. So my questions and clarifications 
are based off of what you said. Now, I'll try to speed up my voice, but I want to make sure uh, that, that I'm clear. We will not interrupt each other. We will respect each other and give each person time to talk. Um, I run this network, and so if we can, if we have to go over two hours, our uh, other program, they have something else to do. They're not on air. We stay on all night long, okay, if I'm talking too slow. But I am going to express myself, you know, with that which I disagree with. I'm going to do it in an agreeable manner, but I'm still you know, going to challenge any information that goes out over these airways or give a different perspective as a person who doesn't feel that way as what you stated. Okay, so this is what we need to acknowledge that Afro-descended people in this country have many different various views and there's different groups. You name the groups that are involved with what you're talking about. And but we know that black people, all black people don't think alike and they don't subscribe to the same ideologies. There may be some crossover where on some things we do agree on. Um, and so, you know, we can focus more on those. But, you know, we had to put out the correct information on this show and on this network because we are known as researchers. OK, so let me continue the Afro-descended people were not given no name called minorities or this minority status. The simple fact is they were a minority in numbers. They were granted citizenship, but the privileges of citizenship was being denied that they were asking for. Because, see, we keep acting like, you know, we didn't have a voice or none of us wanted to be a part of this system or a part of the United States. And that's simply not true. After the Civil War, that's how Liberia was founded because black people had a choice. They could either go with Paul Coffey and go to um, um, Sierra Leone, where he founded a colony of free black people, or they could go to Liberia, which was founded by racist white supremacists who wanted black people out of the country. Uh, Max, it looks like our guest has hung up uh, on us. Um, So, shall I continue with my history lesson? I'm not sure I can unmute just there. All right, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Oh my God. Okay. All right. I mean, because this is, you know, important information that needs to be put out there. We have never operated where a person just comes on and give a monologue. And, you know, it's just going to be some cream puff questions coming here. That's not what we we're not here to entertain. We are here to solve, to seek answers and solutions to problems facing Afro-descended people. Yes. Are you preaching to me? No, I'm not preaching to you. I'm continuing on with the program since Mr. Ansari didn't want to afford me that time to, you know, dispute some of the what he was saying. Because yeah, I, it's I, not I, factual. I don't have any puffy, fluffy questions. I, I didn't have any. But anyway, yeah, let's move on with the show, man. Okay, uh, well, let me, let me finish up then, Max. To his point about my note, because I was taking notes. I was biding my time, being patient, not interrupting, waiting for my time to speak. And I took notes and I want to ask questions 
or make clarification on these notes. So he said we were granted minority status. No, we weren't. Okay. I've, I already covered that. Um, in saying that minority status prevents black people because we call ourselves black or because some of us call ourselves African-American, that that doesn't give us access to the international courts. That's simply not true. While race treaty is on hiatus right now, it is a radio program that I have technically produced um, with the host, uh, Robin, our brother Robin Bitten, who, you know, we thought up the program. He came up with the name. And then um, our brother, uh, Anaje Mui, who has traveled the world and all over the United States working on these issues, working with international courts, going to the United Nations. And if it was true that us calling ourselves African-American or whatever he was talking about, we got this minority status, and so therefore that's preventing us access to the international courts, then why would a UN panel, and I'm reading this, I'm going to share this article from PBS.org, why would a UN panel say to the United States of America, Incorporated, that you owe reparations to African Americans? The United States owes African Americans reparations for slavery, a recent report by a United Nations affiliated group said. The UN working group of experts on people of African descent, and I must state that this is the decade what the United Nations has declared the decade of people of African descent, focusing on our issues. That's what the theme is for this UN. United Nations, although, again, I have my issues with the United Nations, but the UN Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent said that compensation is necessary to combat the disadvantages caused by 245 years of legally allowing the sale of people based on the color of their skin. The UN Group warned that the U.S. has not confronted its legacy of racial terrorism. The report, which of course is non-binding because, uh, you know, we know the United States controls the UN and primarily funds their budget. But the group warned that the U.S. again has not confronted its legacy of racial terrorism. The, the report, which is non-binding, specified that reparations can come in a variety of ways. So they they in agreement with with Mr. Ansari. It don't just have to be money. It can be land. It could be education. It could be you know. But I want the money because I can get all that other stuff with the with the reparation in monetary form. All right. So, but they said it could come including an educational opportunity. How about some free college tuition for all people of African descent? I know Bernie Sanders was pushing it for all. And we should have been behind that, but I accept it just for us. All our children should never have to go into debt or join the United States military to imperialize and colonize other lands just to get some college money like I unfortunately did as a young 20-something-year-old. All right, so it also talks about the terrorism. The U.N. report also linked passing justices to recent police killings of black men that have sparked protests across the United States. 
contemporary police killings and the trauma that they create are reminiscent of the past racial terror of lynching. So again, whether we talk about free, uh, uh, free African citizens of the United States, can't say they weren't citizens because they were being taxed, okay, and they were also being lynched along with the uh, former victims of of slavery. Now, I'll, I'll end my diatribe. I'm not going to call what I said a diatribe. My history lesson in my disagreeing with him on the status of black people, Afro-descendant people, however they self-determine to classify, but we all know each other when we see each other. And we know a victim of racism when we see one. Okay? But, you know, we have legal remedies and and we have been victims of terrorism and it's all ongoing so like the last thing i'll talk about is i support the republic of new africa and the establishment of a black state uh i was recently contacted by a group well it's not really a group but it's an informal group of guys who put out some information on social media and they're saying that black people all we have to do is migrate from all over the country to whatever states, preferably on the south, with access to the coast, and we migrate and we take them over non-violently with the ballot, but also having the bullet as backup. See, you can create your own army and national guard like they deploying to the borders right now to stop non-white people from coming across the border then we can control our own armies and we can take over a state and we've taken over taken over the politics of, of cities. The problem is there's too many collaborators and black faces profiting from modern day slavery and all of that. The so-called sellout. All right, that's our problem. But if we migrate to these areas, I do support the establishment and always have stated I'm a black nationalist. And the way to do that is simply for black people to migrate. Ain't nobody got to be in charge of us. We don't have to be under the direction of any organization. We all decide we're going to move to these states to where we are the majority population. And then we will control that state's treasury. We will control its national guard. We will control its halls of economic. We will control its prison system, its criminal justice system. That's the easiest pathway to establishing a black nation. And if later we want to make alliances and feel like we big and bad enough, we can then declare that we're succeeding from the union. That's the most nonviolent, logical approach that I can sign on to. Okay. Now, the Republic in Cobra. In Cobra also fights for reparations. And I was happy to hear when they were guests on our programs that they agree with us. It's folly to ask for reparations. That's something that's ongoing. And slavery was never abolished. And the UN Declaration of Human Rights says that slavery shall be abolished in all its forms. But we don't see it 
We don't see the United Nations Security Council voting for it, tabling or voting for any resolutions to send in military troops from other countries like they send in the African countries or they send to Haiti or they send wherever they send these troops, okay? To enforce that part of their declaration of human rights, okay? So that ain't happening. We ain't getting no help on that end. So we as citizens, working as citizens, want to change the law to actually abolish slavery, okay, then we have shown that we can unite and achieve a very achievable goal that's not going to take 20, 30 years to implement if we can just get everybody to agree that slavery was never abolished. And it's not even that you have to agree with us, but agree with the 13th Amendment. It's folly to ask for reparations for something that hasn't ended yet. And the terrorism is ongoing. And the slavery is ongoing. And so I'll leave it there and I'll toss it back to you, Max. I, I probably won't speak the rest of the program because I've said all I've had to say on the matter. Be happy to answer any questions, though. Uh, Max, we cannot hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Okay, Scotty, I said, how about if we take a break that we're late for, and then when we come back, I'll take a couple of minutes, and then we'll continue with the program, take a few calls. You are How's tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. I, I just want to say off the top, I apologize to uh, the guests that I invited and to our listeners. You know, we don't always agree on everything. Things that happen like that. It's just human beings, you know what I mean? And I understand that some people tend to talk too damn much. Just, it just, it, it, and it's not limited to what you believe when you talk too much. There's just some people do that, especially scholars, people who have spent their lives studying and learning. They they tend to talk a lot, you know what I mean? And I was hoping to try to get some good questions in there before uh Well, we I, I, I don't see that apology was in order. I apologize that he dropped off the line and passed his time to me to speak, okay? Because I was just about finished with my notes, but, you know, um, he didn't like the information or the point of contention that I had what he had to say, okay? We're about truth. We're about knowledge, we're about documenting the facts. And that's just how I operate, and I don't apologize for it. If he'd have stayed on the line instead of getting offended at the truth that I was sharing, then he could have had his time, but he chose to leave. But you don't come up in another person's house and disrespect them. I was watching a video last night, and I wrote a little bit about it. It was about the conscious community and this one guy in particular, he was brilliant, and he was keeping it raw. And he was talking about how some of these black leaders, like I think he was pointing out Mark Johnson, Seti, uh, was polite, yeah, and a few of the other, other brothers like that, and saying, look how they act. They get emotional when somebody hurt, them, hurt their feelings, and they'll, they'll leave a phone call or 
they'll start, you know, whatever they, it is they do. Like we saw what Omar Johnson did when he got pissed off by Seti. I mean, he threw all of his degrees out the freaking window and went straight hood, which was totally unnecessary. So it, it reminds me of that, you know, emotions run high and people who think they know it all sometimes don't want to hear nobody tell them they don't, <laughs> you know? I really don't know it all. And I try to keep things real as I possibly can. I, I, I do. I tell the truth as much. I mean, I don't. Let me put it this way. Max ain't lying to nobody. I don't like lies. So I ain't trying to lie to nobody. The truth is the best way to work things. That's why I stand on principles. And I don't change what I say no matter what the party or group I'm talking to. Anyway, um, the apology is from me. I invited him. So I was hoping to have some communications as I had with him earlier. I know we disagree on certain aspects, but I was able to. Uh, we were able to discuss it. We don't have. We didn't have enough time for people who talk a lot anyway in that period. Because I did. Brother, they talk like twenty minutes straight about one question, and I did not interrupt had, him not once. I know, I know, and it was just one question. But I don't think he realized we had a limited amount of time. I don't think maybe that's. It. In any case, nothing to be insulted about. And we can't get caught up in our feelings because people are dying. Max, you're going in and out, bro. Okay, sorry about that. Remember, I'm on the phone. Yeah, and, and just to attest to what you said now, I did one interview with Dr. Fresh Cress Wilson, and she was saying stuff about black fathers that I knew was incorrect. It, you know, just that it's just the journalist in me. It's also the it, but she thought that she, you know the interview was just gonna be her talking. That's not an interview. That's a lecture. In an interview, information, you know, yeah, they script questions, especially on the fake news media. They script questions all day long. I've had people tell me that they work in the industry. They write all their questions. They might even forward the questions. I had people ask me forward my, this person questions. No, we don't work like corporate media. Okay, this is grassroots black radio, and we keep it real. And and so, you know, um, she kind of got offended, man, you know, that I was asking her questions about, hey, this report just came out from the C CDC that said black, black fathers are more involved in their children's lives than any other group. And, you know, every group, as we hear about all these fatherless children, but every group was above 50 percent in every category with black men leading the way. But we hear this narrative and and she was saying the system don't allow black men to be black fathers. Well, as a black father who almost went to jail trying to get custody of his kids, got custody of his kids involved with fathers groups, you know, through that struggle. Hey, I had to point out that well there's some information out there that says otherwise but you know some of these scholars like you said people with degrees man you know they're used to giving lectures and just talking to people and giving them their point of view but this is a radio program that's based on researching and asking the tough questions like has slavery really been abolished or or is this what you call a mass incarceration just a continuation of slavery can you hear me, Scotty Reed? I can now. Okay, I had to switch back to the Uber conference call. My phone died. I wasn't prepared to use it this evening. And you are charge. not you're not on a delay on this connection. So next time it happens, we'll just have you dial back in. Okay, it's charging now. Should that happen? Uh, again, my apologize. I, for, I apologize for 
the technical difficulties. Anyway, Scotty, you know what I really want to do, man? I want to take the time to get on some of these stories that we uh, was talking about earlier in the introduction. I mean, it's important to get these disinformation out there. And some of this stuff is uh, really uh, something we should be spreading around, particularly the call uh, for action in Juneteenth that came out of the San Francisco Bay uh, by Brother Malik. And it's to all abolitionists. And basically, I'll post it on New Abolitionist Radio. But basically, what they're saying is that Juneteenth is a perfect opportunity to use these positions where we're gathering together as a people to talk about slavery and the end of slavery and really shed some light on this situation. So if you're an activist and you're aware of the truth and the 13th Amendment is something that hasn't gone over your head, here's a great opportunity to educate people on what the truth is. Max, you know, I'm sure. This Juneteenth for forever now. Yeah, but I'm sure you can go back in New Abolitionist uh, archives where I gave the same plea and told people use that as an opportunity because they had Juneteenth festivals in Charlotte. And what is Juneteenth? But a celebration. You were told something that wasn't actually true, and now you got it's part of your culture. A culture, a part of your culture that's based on a lie, and that lie being that slavery was abolished. So, for those that don't know how the story goes, after the uh, passage of the fraudulent Thirteenth Amendment, which which uh, said that people are free until they are convicted of a crime. Well, let me just state it correctly: involuntary servitude and slavery has been is abolished except as punishment for crime where the party has been duly convicted so it had the exception the famous exception clause so two years after that had passed black people in texas were still living in slavery they hadn't got the word remember texas was part of the confederacy and so those so those uh uh con, former confederates um, kept practicing slavery in the state of Texas. And it was finally two years later by way of the uh, U.S. Army cavalry person and, and, you know, they were riding horses back then, um, brought the news to them about the Union, the war being won by the Union and telling them that they now free. So they got that message and then they always have celebrated every year since Juneteenth. When the black the, uh, victims of slavery in Texas got the news of, you know, the 13th Amendment. Um, and so, but we all know, again, the whole basis of this program is to point out that that's a lie. The 13th Amendment is clear in its language. For those that don't know, Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration commemorating the ending of slavery in the United States. Dating back to 1865, it was on June 19th that the Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. Note that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had become official January 1st, 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on the tech on Texans due to the minimal number of Union troops to enforce the new executive order. However, with the general, with the surrender of General Lee in April of 1865 and the arrival of a General Granger's regiment, the forces were finally strong enough to influence and overcome the resistance. And that comes directly from their website, which is Juneteenth.com. Uh, you can check it out there. So there's a lot of people, and it's a worldwide celebration about something that never happened. <laughs> you know? 
and everybody knows it never happens. Ask any historic historian you you know, whether they agree with us or not, they would tell you that uh, the habit of using free labor, exploiting people, owning them like property continued far beyond 1865. And Max. So anyway, so that's the message. I'm sorry. I don't remember the name of the organization, but I told you about it, that I got an email from African-American Heritage something, but they get primarily looks like their fundings is not just coming from corporate donors, but a function of the U.S. government. And and they asked me to help them spread the word about this event that they was having in Washington, D.C. They hope Barack Obama's going to be there. They said John Lewis going to be there. They said Jesse Jackson's going to be there. And Scotty Reed can have a front row seat if he just promote this event coming up. And I told the man I wasn't interested if I'm not a speaker so I can speak on the 13th Amendment and, and the greatest lie ever told to people on this continent, then I'm not interested in hearing a bunch of people uh, tell me lies that I know aren't true and celebrate something that has not ended. Do you recall me telling you that, Max? Yes, I do, Scotty. Yep, definitely. Can't recall exactly when, but I think it was this year, wasn't it? Yes, about maybe two months ago or a month and a half ago. I got the email still. They even sent me a postcard. In in my conversation with Dr. Ansari, that's one of the things that I talked about when he asked about the new abolitionist movement potentially joining what they're trying to accomplish there. And I said, you know, I've seen these examples before, not only on an international level, but also on a national level with organizations like the... uh, Occupy Wall Street, where you just put everybody's problems together, you know what I mean? And nobody's problem is at the top. And for us, this is our life. This is what the, There is nothing more important than freaking ending slavery. I mean, you name it, you know? That's where we, we are at. And to be just, you know, put in with 50 other primary issues really takes us right backwards more than forwards. We're doing great without just blending in and becoming a part of the crowd. That's what's been going on for forever right now. That's why, you know, a year ago or a year, two years ago, the information came out that Nixon had purposely started the drug war in order to criminalize black people and to uh, arrest anti-war uh, protesters, mainly to go after black people. Now, this was not a conspiracy theory. This is a freaking conspiracy fact. It's what he did. And the drug war is still here today, right? Now, the war on Iraq started by the Bush administration over false information. And on any given day, you can see an advocate talking about how many people have died due to this war that was falsely justified. I mean, they say like 15 million or something like that is dead. You could easily find out. But you don't hear none of that about how many people have died due to Nixon's war on drugs, which is a war on black people. You don't hear any of that about how many people have died, how many lives have been ruined, how much displaced homes occurred, how many people's futures were destroyed when they started criminalizing black people. I mean, you don't hear that. And that just shows how it goes when black lives don't matter to you. Anyway, 
one of the things I really want to get out tonight, Scotty, it comes from the sister of my mentee, Henry Henderson, uh, Spirit, as I told you, and she did an interview with Brian Stevenson about the new lynching memorial that rewrites American history. As everybody knows, um, Brian Stevenson is also a slavery abolitionist who I have communicated with personally, and a few have seen it on video, I guess. And any, anyway, they're opening this new museum, and it's pretty damn awesome. And I'd like you to hear the uh, video. It's only a couple of minutes long, uh, where uh, she interviews him about this project. I just put it on NAR on Facebook, and it's also in our planning stage. Scotty? Yeah, Max, quickest way, if you can, post it in our chat room. I was just entertaining some of our chatters because, you know, we do have a chat room at, at Black Talk, uh, excuse me, uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network if you'd like to join us in um, the chat. Okay, Max, I see it. Let me open it up. Yes, I, I try to interact with the chat as often as possible, but usually I've got like 12 different windows opening. I, I know, so that's why I, stuff, I try to know? cover it. I try to cover it and include them more. <laughs> yeah, so um, let me go ahead and queue up. This is from CNN, this new lynching memorial rewrites American history. And every time I see... Uh, Mr. Stevens, uh, immediately I get the image in my head, in my head of Max Parthis in the crowd, putting those hard <laughs> questions and converting this dude, making sure that there was no ambiguity, uh, the word, Max, you know the word I'm trying to Yeah, yeah make, making sure there was no confusion that, sir, you Harvard trained lawyer, you recognized that the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. So, And he didn't disappoint. He was very clear about it. And he's very clear about it in this video. All right. So let's uh, let this queue up. It may What's the power of AI? First. What if it could help the blind? Let me go ahead and mute that. Oh, yeah. Ad. You know you got to hear the commercials first. Yeah. So um, hopefully it won't be too much longer and we can hear. This uh, interview given by, uh, well, no, this is the person. Who Nia wrote the Malika test. Henderson is the uh, person. Okay, so she the wrote interview. the test. Shout too. out. Yeah. All right, here we go. I told my mom I was coming to, uh, to Montgomery, yeah. Alabama, and I was going to go to what I told her was a lynching museum. And she said, Why would they want to do that? <laughs> yeah. I think that we have developed uh, a, a really uh, advanced coping strategy of silence. This is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, a site dedicated to the more than 4,000 victims of lynching in America. You know, we started the research years ago and then the monuments started to come. And when they arrived, I think the thing that completely blew me away that I hadn't just thought about before was sort of seeing these names. He is Brian Stevenson, a lawyer who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, or EJI, an organization with a long and powerful record of getting more than 100 people off of death row, of fighting for juveniles with life sentences, and of winning cases that went as high as the Supreme Court. Even in the names, you see stories like this is an entire family 
that's killed in, in Tattnall County, Georgia. And those stories are everywhere. Elizabeth Lawrence lynched in Birmingham, 1933. School teacher coming home, she was walking and a bunch of white kids started throwing stones at her. Mm -hmm. And like any good teacher, she said to these kids, don't throw stones at people. They went home and told their parents that they had been chastised by a black woman. The parents were outraged. They organized a mob, they went to her home and they lynched her. The memorial and a nearby museum that connects slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration open on April 26th. And some people might find it difficult to make the connection between slavery and mass incarceration might be a difficult leap for mm -hmm. some people. Well, and I don't think people should leap. I think it's a continuum, right? This picture gives insight on why we're talking about this. Southern prisons made incarcerated people pick cotton until the 80s and early 1990s. And that's where that language in the state in the 13th Amendment that prohibits slavery except for people convicted of crimes becomes so relevant. This isn't an accident. Right. It's funny, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm starting to sound like the people who raised me. But I, I'm too old for it. I've seen too much. I don't want to go through another 30 years of seeing people wrongly convicted and brutalized and condemned and mistreated uh, and not do something disruptive, do something different. What is your hope uh, that people will take away from this museum once they spend time here going through the exhibits? I think we need to create spaces in this country where we tell the story of what happened to Native people, where we tell the story of what happened to African Americans, where we tell the story of slavery, the story of lynching, the story of segregation. And at the end of it, people are motivated to say, never again. Because I don't think we've ever been required to say that. So my hope is that people will leave this space uh, prepared to say, never again can we tolerate racial bias and bigotry anywhere. And I think if we create a consciousness like that, uh, we can begin to expect more from our institutions, from our schools, from our system, our court system, from our elected leaders than we expect right now. We don't expect as much as we should. Was that, is that the end, Scotty? Yes, sir. You hear where they clearly said this museum is set up to make the connections. And he was clearly telling you that he's tired of seeing it happening right now. The same exact thing over and over and over again. Brutalized, uh, set up, uh, you know, framed for things, criminalized, and just lives being lost. So it's an amazing museum. And the imagery that I've seen so far with those big pillars hanging from the sky just gives you a sense of perspective of just how blatant and flagrant this was where it was at one point Americans, American citizens, were taking pictures at lynchings 15,000 deep, smiling with their babies in hand, and then using those images as postcards that people were buying. See, Max, this is why, you know, what he's doing is more than just creating a museum and telling a story and showing a continuum. As he said, you shouldn't have to leap. 
because there was no never any break in it. It's a continuum from slavery to slavery. What y'all call it mass incarceration is a continuation of slavery. And so his work is not only spreading that truth, but it's also in legal terms. This is a Harvard trained lawyer. And we were, I was talking about earlier, the UN working group during this decade of Af- of people of African descent saying that the United States owes us reparation. That he's compiling evidence. That's evidence right there that will be accepted in the court of law. He got the school teacher name, what year it was, where she lived. We can even bring that up to Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, just a continuum of lynchings. Okay? So he's doing very important work. And so this is documenting evidence that helps support the case for reparations. And we got to end it first. As he's pointing out, this is a continuum. And I'm tired of this. And I'm tired, Max, of, of, of us accepting that slavery, like he said, if we change the narrative to the truth, change that's important, change the narrative to the truth, most people, most right-thinking people, most people who want to practice justice, regardless of their background, ethnicity, religious affiliation, when they understand that slavery was never abolished and this society has been lying to it through its institutions and its imagery and its propaganda machine, been lying to you and that this isn't mass incarceration of black males. This is slavery. This is plain and simple. And most people are going to be against slavery. You can't make an argument for slavery unless you are a slaver. You can make an argument against mass incarceration because they make them all day long. But when you point out the evil that it is and show that it's unjustified, because mass incarceration, in my opinion, gives validity to the vi- to to the condition of the victims, like they done something to get here. But you rightly pointed out that it's also in the ev- in, in the evidentiary record that Nixon started the drug war to put people into slavery, primarily black men and leftists protesting against the Vietnam War. Max, I toss it back to you. Yeah, and Nixon did that immediately after and as a response to the black liberation movements of the 60s and the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s. It was a direct response. Max, uh, Otis in the chat room says, a historical society in Virginia where slavery began in American colonies in 1619 has discovered the identities of 3,200 victims of slavery from unpublished private documents providing new information for today's descendants in a first-of-its-kind online database, society officials say. All right, so he has shared the link. It's also on CNN from 2012. He shared the link in the chat room. Max, I'll go ahead and post that to uh, BTR community and our Facebook page. Thank you very much, Scotty. Yeah, uh, first of all, let me again say uh, bravo, Nia Malika Henderson. Uh, wonderful. And I could have, I, sh- I, sh- I sh- should have expected that from her because her, both her and her brother, Henry, come from parents who were highly active in the civil rights movements and civil rights workers. You know, And Henry has always been the type of person 
that stands up for what he believes in, uh, regardless of what people think. And his sister is no less courageous. So uh, shout out to you for doing that. Well, Scotty, there are other a few other things that I, I really want to get uh, out tonight, if possible. Uh, we've got, it's 934, we've got enough time for our regular segments and maybe 10 minutes more. Well, um, again, you mentioned as earlier, I stated we could go over a little if we needed to. Yeah, Max, yeah, I was about to say that. You know, I said, you know, if he needs, he can take all the time he needs to talk because um, my body and spirit had to cancel tonight, so there's no program coming on at 10. Okay. Well, is that an invitation for him to return if he's uh, in the earshot? It's an invitation it's, uh, to anybody who wants to call okay. in with their questions or comments. And that number All right, is and that's seven. what I was going to say we should do next. Instead of just keep going with the stories, let's take questions and comments since we got some ex- a little bit extra time. So, uh, you know, if you're listening and uh, you're on our chat room, just press star star to unmute yourself and, uh, you know, just and we have give us a your caller, question or comment. We have a caller... We have a caller, Elaine, out of Georgia, looks like. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question or comment. Greetings. Um, I have a comment. Um, One thing that um, I wanted to stress about uh, the mass incarceration and the war on drugs is that from the perspective that I've looked at it and that I've studied, that is the relationship that we have with the United States that subjects us to that abuse and that plenary power. The plenary power doctrine runs through all of those cases that, uh, such as the uh, Dred Scott case, the Slaughterhouse cases, the Plessy uh, versus uh, the... Uh, that Plessy case, I can't quote it right off the top of my head. Plessy versus but, Ferguson. Yes, Plessy versus Ferguson. The, the the main thread that runs through that uh, uh, those cases, that is the plenary power. That is where we were forced to assimilate or subjugate, subjugated without our consent, under, still under duress because we were fresh out of slavery and they was, there were still acts of violence against us, we were subjugated into an ambiguous status where they on paper said you were citizens. But if you look at the lynchings, if you look at the murders, if you look at how once we, uh, our ancestors established these viable cities such as Rosewood, uh, the Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, and we were, uh, our ancestors were, were just basically terrorized and with the U.S. government's complicity. It's not so much as individual white people or individual uh, 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 white officers who is just don't like black people. This is a relate an unprincipled relationship issue. And and I, once I'm, we I'm once sorry, we figure ahead. out that that that's the issue, and not be so much as we always look at it in terms of race. Yes, race is a derivative of what's going on, but it's that unprincipled relationship of colonialism and extreme marginalization 
of 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 uh, basically usurping our human capital for their use, the use to keep their status quo intact. That is what the change in the, and that is what we're going to have to deal with. That relationship. We won't have police brutality and so much human rights violations once we assume jurisdiction over ourselves and facilitate authority transfers. Because we have to remember, we are intergenerational prisoners of war, and this war has never been over. It's never been over. It's never been declared over, and it won't be over until we resolve the conflict via a treaty or a compact. Okay. Thank and you. That's from my perspective. All right. Well, thank if you. I might just give the definition of plenary power so our listeners know what that means. Uh, plenary power or plenary authority is a complete and absolute power to take action on a particular issue with no limitations. For example, the granting of federal pardons in the United States is one of the plenary powers of the president. It's derived from the Latin term plenus, meaning full. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, Again, we have identified the problem is going way back before Plessy versus uh, Ferguson, which was overturned by the laws that uh, Dr. King in the Civil Rights Movement was able to get in place that prohibited discrimination based on sex, race, um, uh, national origin, which, you know, the whole stink with Trump calling these African nations um, use the cuss word, you know, whole nations and what have mm-hmm. you. And and so, but the issue is slavery. The slave status, that, again, you know, the, while again, free black people were a part of this establishment of these colonies. They were a part of the colonies, but slavery, to your point that it wasn't about race, at first it was not about race. You had involuntary servitude and slavery for usually practiced against Irish people. We hear a lot about them being brought over here as indentured servants. Some of them were slaves too, okay? And so then you had Bacon's Rebellion and then you had the Virginia Slave Codes where it made it about race. You know, uh, Barack Obama is actually descendant of the first person who was sentenced by courts uh, in a Virginia court to slavery for life. That ended in, in, everybody was indentured servants. Then by that court, that one court decision with Barack Obama's um, ancestor, I put out a video, I can't even recall his name right now, um, but he and, and two white, what we call white people, now most likely Irish, ran away from the farmer that they was indentured to. He was the only one that was sentenced to servitude for the rest of his life, introducing the lifetime slavery on the continent of North Carolina. And then, I mean, excuse me, of North America. Then it became about only black people at the Bacon's Rebellion, where you had people regardless of, of their skin color and of, you know, European and African descent rebelled. Okay, against them, and then that is when white privilege was introduced, and these race laws were introduced, creating what people are calling uh, whiteness, which is white supremacy. You know, because I mentioned the slave codes applying also, I'll just read from the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705, 
were a series of laws enacted by the colony of Virginia's House of, of Boisjes regulating activities related to interactions between slaves and citizens of the Crown Colony of Virginia. Here are some of the bullet points. It established new property rights for slave owners, allowed for the legal free trade of slaves with protections granted by the court, established separate courts of trial, prohibited blacks regardless of free status from owning firearms. Okay, it's important to state that that is not only the um, perhaps the first documented case of gun control and aimed in a racially way at free black people, but it's also acknowledging that they had free black citizens who were citizens. And this was the introduction of racism and white supremacy. Said whites also talk about economic power. Whites, we couldn't even hire white people to work for us at that time. Whites could not be employed by blacks. Now, again, you would have had white labor being the most the most plentiful labor outside of slavery and from the records there's been one or two but most free black people did not practice slavery so they had to hire the available labor which would have been most likely these Irish former indigent servants then it also you talked about police who we call slave catchers allowed for the apprehension of suspected runaways you know people won't talk about the militias yes the second amendment does have to do with militias to prevent uh rebellions of victims of slavery but black citizens as stated in this virginia slave codes of 1705 up until that point had the right to bear arms as well i think chris wants to join us on the line but i uh, chris hold off i want to give um our sister Elaine a chance to respond to any of that what I shared with her Uh, everything you said is true and we have so many dynamics to us as a people Um, that was one period of time that you're referring to and one significant uh, point of entry for uh, Africans but isn't it also applying to all Afro-descendant yes, people? Yes, yes, it applies and it to all Afro-descendants. Right? But I want to share with you this information. Okay. Uh, I found out, just doing a little research at the University of Georgia, that Africans were here as far back as 1526, and that they were back and forth over here as uh, that they came over here as explorers with Elyon and Pasta de Lon. Delion, and also uh, there was a war uh, with the Wali, the Wali Indians and the Africans merged together to fight the Spanish. So what I'm stressing is that we have been in a perpetual state of war with these people, that they have always treated us that we're outsiders, that we're others, that we're outside of their politics. Out of all of the minorities, if you look at it, for ever since 1865, we have been on the fringes of their politicity, of their Euro-American society. How can you you say that, Elaine, when I just read to you the slave codes of 1705? I know. That started way before 1865. Let me finish. So under, under that 
under that, I say that as part of who we are, of part part of our identity, we are intergenerational prisoners of war, and that afford us rights under humanitarian law, under human rights law. The way that we're fighting is not consistent with people who want abuses to stop. It's not, because we're going back to the ones who oppressed us in the first place for remedy. I know it's the, we're looking at the two lesser evils, but we have to look at it just like this. Congress, the courts, the United States government, out of almost two, we've been out of slavery, what, almost 200-some years, and we're still going through the same thing. We have to do something different. Yeah, and the difference that we We have have to do is quit thinking that slavery was abolished. You just said we've been 200 years out of slavery. The whole point of this program is to point out, like like Brother Stevens, the Harvard-trained lawyer, just pointed out in his museum that slavery was never abolished. It's been a continuation of slavery. That's the root cause Everything mm-hmm. else in in between, we can go back and forth all day long. And then also pointing back to all of us were not came over here or descendants of people who came over here with Ponce de Leon and other colonizers. And that's not all of our story. Where our, mm-hmm. You did correctly point out that we have also uh, crossed, what would we call it, uh, you know, just straight up made it and produce offspring with the aboriginal population. So people who classify as black, African-American, to me it don't matter what you're calling yourselves. We know each other when we see each other, but when we do our own individual research on our family, we find that our very the thing that we have most in common is uh, uh, white people and their system practicing slavery against us. We're still fighting that same battle from the first enslaved victim and the subjugation of free black people. That covers us all. That covers us all. Uh, Let's let's toss it to Chris. Yeah, and after Chris, I want to chime in as well on the conversation. Uh, Peace, brothers. Yeah, definitely. Hey, Chris. Welcome, brother. What's going on? And and the sister, the sister, you know, Scotty, y'all, y'all got me feeling like my mom, like ready to say right on, because <laughs> y'all was y'all was on point. Um, one thing, one thing that I, I wanted to touch on was the fact that the government. I mean, this is the 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 problem is the government, and the government and the state that allowed us to be categorized and treated in this way. Like he just said, and like the sister said, whatever you know you want to say, we still fall into that same boat. Whether you was over here, whether you came over here, whether you mixed in, whether you just got brought in, we still don't have no justice. And it doesn't really matter that it does matter the la- the name legally, but at the same time, you could legally change change the the way how you treat us by by how we're represented, and I, and that fight has really not been taken. Like, we have not went up to the courts or to, I would say, Supreme Court and say, you have to stop treating these people, whether you say black or whether you say African-American or whether you call yourself by the first and last name, that fight is where we have to come together and actually attack in that nature instead of 
and we still attack cops and things of injustice. But I'm saying I haven't seen like us try to come collectively and go up against how they're treating our people overall. Like there should be a punishment when you shoot us. There should be a punishment when you say something to us that's derogatory or racist. There should be a punishment when you kill us. And it's not. A person gets treated differently when they do these things. And I just feel that that, that, that really should be the next fight of how you treat us. This is what happens. Not I want to get paid when you kill me. No, no. You, when, you, when you do something to me, you need to either be taken out of here or get a, or, or get a severe punishment. And, you know, that's my point on it. Indeed, Chris. Appreciate that comments, man. And I think I agree with you on those uh, statements and at least the spirit of what you were trying to express there. Uh, I said I wanted to add something to it, and that's about the, uh, you know, I'm a poet. So when I see word sorcery happening, I recognize it because it's what I do. You know what I mean? I know how the, the power of words are. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were Civil War Amendments, were that sorcery. For instance, the 13th Amendment has an exception clause which allows you to be a slave if you've been convicted of a crime. That amendment, that exception clause, can be traced all the way back to 1777 and the Constitution of Vermont, which had basically the same thing but worse in it, because in, which it's still in effect today in, in Vermont, as a matter of fact. Their Constitution says, except uh, for people who have chose to be a slave after 25 I believe and except for debts owed so if you owe somebody you can become a slave and then it finishes off with and the like which is the most vague thing I've ever heard in my, my life you can be a slave for the like so that started all the way back there the 13th amendment has that exception clause so once you become a criminal who has been convicted you have lost your citizenship you're a property now they literally call you state property and they sell you on the open market in the form of uh, prison stocks and jail bonds and then you've got the other two amendments which came into play and added to the sorcery the 14th amendment which declared that everybody born uh, or naturalized in the United States is an American citizen right including African Americans and slaves recently free but it doesn't apply to people who have been convicted in court and become a criminal. They are still slaves. Then the 15th Amendment, which says that uh, the Constitution prohibits each government in the United States from denying a citizen the right to vote based on that citizen's race, color, or previous condition of servitude, doesn't even exist for us because once you're in that prison, you ain't a, uh, you're no longer a citizen. You don't have the right to vote. It's taken away from you. And Just even if after you get out of prison, Max, even after you get out of prison, as you know, um, if you would share that, that post, and for the person who will, shall remain anonymous, if you can pull it up right quick, it speaks to what you're talking about, the, 15, the sorcery of the 15th Amendment. It talks about previous condition of servitude. They're talking about people who just got out of prison, but they're still tagged with that slave slash felon status. And I think that person really spoke eloquently to how it ties in the slavery we're still dealing with. Which person would that be, Scotty? Uh, you, he wanted to remain nameless. Oh, Ooh. you... <laughs> you know, he told me, he said, Max, whatever you want to do, uh, I'm here to support Max Parthas. So, you know, I, I put it out, remain nameless, 
because I, I just wanted people to understand the point he was making. You know what I mean? Not worry about who wrote it. This is the point. And that brother, uh, I will say loud and clear today, is Christopher Irvin out of Maryland. And uh, the work he's doing is phenomenal. He just recently called me yesterday, like, Max, we just passed the bill in the House uh, for the collateral consequences bill that we put forward, you know, which would be uh, expungements, taking these crimes off people's records, because he believes that that could reduce the prison population by 50% when you're dealing with a 50%, almost 50% recidivism rate for uh, federal and an almost 80% for state, <laughs> you know? So that was Christopher Irving. But in any case, those three amendments, those Civil War amendments are the okie doke. That's how they've been getting us. And they know it. And they've known it all along because they immediately enacted convict leasing after the 13th Amendment was passed. And what is convict leasing? Well, I would suggest, and I highly suggest, that you read a book by Jay Mancini called One Die, Get Another. Uh, convict leasing in the American South, 1928, uh, 1866 to 1928. He clearly says in there that the only difference between convict leasing and slavery is that with criminals so plentiful, they were seen as disposable. It actually made it worse for black Americans, for African Americans, after the Emancipation Proclamation. And here we are today. The results of all that, can, you can see clearly with the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. And every single one of them, not just in the cages, but going through the systems too, are earning someone money. It's a trillion dollar a year freaking industry. Your justice system is following market values. Uh, Max, I, I pulled it up and I will share it after we get comments from Otis who wants to chime in. And again, yes, I'm leaving everybody's mic open, so just watch background noise. But if you want to chime back in, um, you know, just uh, look for your chance and let us know you're there. Um, Otis, thank you for joining us tonight. New abolitionists. Go ahead. Good evening, everybody. I'm, I'm I'm constantly learning with my engagement with you gentlemen. I just want to try to tie it into something because uh, Sister Porter used the term plenary powers in the doctrine. So I've been researching that since being in contact with her over the last four or five years. And the word plenary just sit in, in reduced terms means absolute power without any confrontation. I tried to stick a couple of notes in there chat room over there. So to tie the document, when I first started trying to play with this in my mind, it was Sister Shabazz, the lawyer, that I asked about the possibility of using the exception clause in court and how, how we could try to get it overturned. And what I've come to understand, and I may be wrong, is the, the, the other cruel part about the 13th exception clause is in the second second sex, section of it, it actually says that Congress may have all the right to enforce that law, which mm-hmm. also means mm-hmm. the right. only way to change it is through Congress because Congress has absolute right. power over that 13th exception clause. Exactly. Right. And there's only, pardon me? There's only two ways that that can occur through Congress. That's with a convention of states or a congressional convention. Yeah, and, and exactly, which is the other integral part of what I was going to get to, but you threw it in there, and here's what I was going to say. I also understood that because that's part of the reason 
the reparations case got thrown out in Detroit from a couple of years ago. I've been researching different, several different angles on C-SPAN and all of that. It's because the court won't come out and say that it really has no jurisdiction over enforcing that. It is explicit in the Constitution using that term plenary that once the Constitution afforded Congress that sole right, you can't even contest that in court. The only way to change it is the two two ways that uh, Max just spoke on, and I'll mute myself. And if I may elaborate on what Otis said. Yes, please, uh, Sister Elena. Well, there's another case, uh, Cato versus the United States, and it basically closed the courthouse courthouse doors on us, period, uh, in terms of whether it's reparations or whatever have you. In that case, in the opinion of that case, it cited, uh, and I don't have it in front of me, I'm just giving you the gist, it cited the statute of limitations. It cited, uh, it referred to our status. Uh, and it also said because they had no treaties with uh, so-called African Americans, and I say so-called because people like to argue what we call ourselves. But that those are the reasons that we cannot get any of our issues addressed. That court case lays it out. It basically says we have exhausted all of our remedies domestically to deal with to deal with uh, any maltreatment that we want to get uh, restorative justice. Because I think re- re- reparations uh, is is not a big enough uh, word to you uh, to get for remedy for us. So I'm going to stick with restoration or, or or remedy for us. Well, I also um, think reparations is 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 kind of made so cheap. It's like a cheap word. Like we want to get a check, but we need more than a check. We need these people to stop killing us right now. We need these people to stop uh, sending us to jail and and working for these private entities when we when we can't even get out. When we get out of these jails, we can't get a job. But these same entities, uh, you know, they're you know working people for thirty three cents per hour. So. The issue is so intricate of how we have been woven through the through the through the system uh, as just like disposable people or a disposable population. If you look at it, so our only options, just based on what I have personally studied, is we're going to have to step outside of the jurisdiction of the United States to deal with our issue. Now we don't have time to do it later because I would, we're um, in genocidal conditions. I will Look refer you to Race Treaty. In the, in the White House. I will um, refer you to Race Treaty. I would also ask you to reach out to Brother Najee Mouid. Um, also, uh, Sister Vanelia Randall, there are people who are going to the UN that's outside of the U.S. jurisdiction. That's the only other recognized other than the International Criminal Court, which the United States is not signed on to and don't recognize their authority, but they somewhat recognize, although they dictate to the UN more than the UN dictates to them, 
That is the outside the United States. That's where Malcolm X was taken and when he was assassinated. Dr. King was talking about we're moving from civil rights to human rights, which enters the international arena. Then he was assassinated. And so we do have brothers and sisters like Vernelia Randall, uh, who is an elder, former law professor of the year, uh, Brother Anaje Mawig, uh, activist, and all the other people whose names I can't remember right now. Uh, many of them working with uh, one of the other organizations that's trying to get Congress to bring the court, uh, to have a, um, hearings on the 13th Amendment. So people are, have been, there's a long history of that, and I think that I need to speak up for them. Um, because they have stepped outside of, of exactly what you're saying. But one of the notes I took, that clock is, my question was going to be, was there an appeal? I'm not hearing that an appeal was filed. Um, this did not go to the Supreme Court. So that means an appeal could be filed. I don't know what the statute of limitations, which ironically you mentioned as what they're saying, is why this reparations lawsuit failed. Uh, which, by the way, is more than likely tied to descendants of 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 uh, victims of slavery, which would rule me out. Okay, but a person who is Afro descendant who suffered all the racial terrorism and treated as a second class citizen and all the abuses that everybody we've been talking about that's still on ongoing, but. The very fact that the 13th Amendment says they did not abolish slavery, that clock is still ticking. And I would suggest people look up Max's, what it would look like the day slavery ended. And it includes putting slavers on trial and hanging them by the neck if necessary. But, but you know, I, I would recommend that they check that out. But the clock is still ticking. So in my appeal, and I've never been to law school, but I, you know, I, I study it and I talk to many lawyers bounce it off of them but that clock is still ticking so I would file an appeal saying hey wait a minute you can't claim statute of limitation for something that's never ended and your supreme document which you say is the supreme law of the land says slavery was never abolished mm -hmm. that's, true. that's true one of the that's true one of the groups that Dr. Ansari told me he was working with uh, are the Moors and the Moors are doing the same thing uh, working on the treaty of 1787 uh, and, you know, but they also say things like you're in Morocco uh, here in the United States. So, you know, it, it goes beyond my level of understanding. For, from what I understand, what we're dealing with is that magic word that my sister Anne-Marie says makes everything okay. And that word is legal. And because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. So legal allows things like the Alabama sheriffs, 49 Alabama sheriffs who right now are uh, taking home money from the food funds for the prisoners and feeding them garbage because it's legal. It says right in their laws that these sheriffs can keep any extra money. And so we're talking about slaves. Interest. We're talking about slaves. Yeah. Let's talk about the victims that we're talking. That's yeah. why it's legal because slavery was never abolished. And they were talking about the victims. They had their slave status still because it was never abolished. Yes. So I think that the problem is these legalities which uh, this country is based on it's a nation of laws and the supreme law of the land is the United States Constitution which gives you certain rights and those rights are being violated every day at least seven don't even exist anymore right under your noses and if this is a nation of laws and everything has been done internally because the 
uh, Egyptians didn't write our constitution. The British didn't write our constitution. We stole it from the Air Force, but it was here and on this land that it was written. So we had to work internally, I think, to correct those problems while being connected to the global issues of it. Because it doesn't end at our borders, as we reported here on the New Abolitionist Radio, nations like Brazil with the most violent and, and terrible prisons on earth just became privatized. The entire nation of uh, Australia is run by for-profit prisons, even to the extent where uh, Guantanamo Bay was at one time run by the GEO Group. <laughs> you know, so I think that it, it can be very beneficial to us and can really advance our cause if we can get this 13th Amendment under the microscope. And with disclosure during a congressional hearing on the 13th Amendment, the entire world can see what's going on. And usually America acts when the entire world starts turning against them because of what they're doing. They may uh, screw you over in the way that they act, like they did with the 13th Amendment, like they did with convict leasing. They'll pretend like they're ending it, but they'll do something. It's up to us at that point to make sure that they do it correctly and we never have to deal with this problem ever again. I agree. Well, Max, we do need we to take a short break. To. I'm sorry, Sister Lay, you can come, you can um, um, bring us your comments on the other side of the break because we're actually in overtime right now, so we're at the top of the hour. I want to take a station identification break. Max? Yes, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Be right back. I'm not a writer. Okay. Give up on my way. Black Talk Radio, since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, Sister Elena, you were saying? Yes, I agree with you that there needs to be some type of uh, communication to Congress uh, that, uh, you know, we need to do something about this 13th Amendment. However, I still, my position is still, we need to look revisit this relationship uh, dealing with our sovereignty 
And I know people don't like to use that word because of the uh, report that came out that came out about black extremism. Uh, one position that I stand on firmly is that even though whether we were enslaved on the continent or our ancestors were enslaved here, and a majority, even though we did have some free persons of color, their autonomy, their sovereignty, and their human rights were curtailed based on, after uh, that rebellion, based on their color or based on not necessarily the color, but based on the fact that they were perceived as a person of African descent. So their rights were curtailed uh, at some point, even the Moors who proclaimed that they were that they are white. I've heard some Moors here lately saying, well, we are white, and they put it on this form and they claim that they're free. But the bottom line is we're going to have to come up with clear political objectives. This issue of the 13th Amendment is a political issue that deals with our relationship with the United States government. Yeah. Um, they have used their judicial system and their political system as a way to sustain our uh, 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 relegation to uh, basically just a disposable population of people. They can just do what they want to whenever they get ready because we have never addressed that relationship, and I yield the floor. Uh, I think. That directly? Yes. Uh, because that was part of what I was saying in some of the research when once I got in touch with her, or she got in touch with me, and started understanding planetary, planetary connections. Part of the reasons that reparations case was thrown out of court, according to the judge, and I can't remember his name, and I want to tie the time up with it, was because he alleges that there is no way to document direct connections from current African descendants of slaves to the slaves who actually endured the harm. Now, I just sent it to Scotty, and he mentioned it when I gave it to him. The truth is, and we brought it up a couple weeks ago when I was telling you about Dr. Gerald Horn, the truth is there was not enough public records hidden away in archives, but as I just showed Scotty, the fact that private documentation has been coming out just like the specific case in Virginia with over 3,500 slaves with the actual documents and records, they are actually records like that all over this country and most of the archives of these little small courthouses. The thing is, the living people now are trying to hold on to those documents. They're not right. letting them come to public life because you know for yourself if the authentic documents are here from 1700 and 1800s that were once stored in attics, that is proof of direct linkage. Well, I mentioned all this that Barack Obama. Let me let me uh, look that up. Barack Obama, descendant. I want to say the man's name is John Bunch. Um, and look, while you're at that, I want to throw this in and then mute myself. The other thing is when we, me and Scotty were talking about the only way, the, the two ways to change that is uh, through the convention of states or Congress take up independent action. There actually is court precedence that says Congress can act it. 
in lieu of, of doing that based on immediate need, meaning if the evidence, so, and that's part of the reason when I was conversing and tweeting to the CBC, I kept saying it to them, and a few members had blocked me from Twitter because I keep <laughs> saying to them, if they were introducing this evidence actually right. on the floor of Congress, right. we would already have some some movement on the issue. Exactly. Laying we out that evidence. Representation is not doing their job. And Stevens, you know, I really appreciate what he's doing. That's more than a museum. That's a depository of records because he mentioned the names of the lynching victims. So again, and my record, question is, rep, rep, if he has the documentation to make these monuments, why have they not be presented in some court of law? Because he nobody's had, thought got, of it yet. That's all. People aren't coming together. People aren't unifying. But I'm. I, I, I want to change my language on that. We're starting to see that. So he laying it out there independently. He working in the system to free people wrongfully convicted I don't he has a long resume but now he's documenting he mentioned the names he gave you the school teachers name who were lynched her former slave status or free status don't matter she's a victim of white terrorism based on the color of her skin or as sister Lane being perceived to be of afro descent or not a disposable person and they allowed mobs to but he has names I forgot how many names he mentioned then we heard about Georgetown University these colleges own on victims of slavery too a sister in Charlotte got a letter from Georgetown University after some of their documents were discovered and it named one of her relatives one of her de- descendants found in the census as well so it offered her uh, a free ride but did not give man that woman like in her in her um, 40s she need to sue them for reparations okay i'm just telling you what was, i know what was i know i know otis i know yeah so yeah. but if they got records look we've all this is from ancestry they're digging up records I found out through one of these ancestry blogs that I'm a descendant of a person who helped fund the American Revolution in North Carolina. So that, you know, but President Obama, a lot of people don't know this, and some people cuss me out for saying that he is, you know, they were saying, oh, he's a son of Africa, a Kenyan. He didn't have no African-American, excuse me, he didn't have no connection to slavery personally through his lines, but believe it or not, through his white mama, who is a descendant of John Punch, um, um, the first person who was sentenced that I was talking about in Virginia, sentenced to lifetime of indentured servitude that introduced, uh, what do they call it, chattel slavery on this continent, practiced just against People perceived or were African descended. But this is what they said. We've all heard about President Obama's Irish roots, and we know his father came from Kenya, but a research team from Ancestry, the world's largest online family history resource, has also concluded that the nation's 44th president is also the 11th great-grandson of John Punch, the first documented African enslaved for life in American history. And what's more, the connection comes through the President Obama's Caucasian mother's family. Okay, so this documentation is out there, and so that blows that judges, and I'm glad you said his opinion, but like Sister Lane was saying, and other people were saying, this stuff need to be challenged all the way up 
through the the uh to the Supreme Court. Okay, this is documentation of their crime. So the evidence is there. There's names that are are there, and it's more information that's coming to light that that people should look up. And some people don't want to look it up because of I don't know why. Uh, you know, she mentioned some of the now I don't know if they Morris brothers or sisters or or the Morris Science Temple. I don't know, but they they change their names. You know, usually have L Bay or something like that that in it and one posted on Facebook that I'm I'm cool with but we bump heads on certain things but when we cool we, you know we see each other like you know um um Africans see each other so um he posted I don't want nothing from the United States no reparations or nothing I don't want to go to the UN or he didn't say the UN or Europeans for nothing and I told him and he he agreed that reparations ain't you going asking for nothing. You're not going begging for nothing. Reparations in the legal sense is, is, you know, to uh, help you recover from this crime. And unfortunately for us, all of us uh, who see each other, we've been victims of slavery since they implemented, since, since John Punch, all right, uh, the first enslaved person in history, American history. I think I hear somebody wants to chime in. Yeah, I would. Oh, go ahead, Sister Elena. Sister Elaine, if you could hold off, Sister Elaine, Sister Elaine, Sister Elaine, if you could just hold hold up for a moment, or if you, you know, it's going to be brief, but we want to bring in uh, another caller who hasn't spoken. I do see you. Okay, I'll wait. I'll hold my, bring him in. Okay, thank you. Uh, six four six. I think that's our our uh, abolitionist comrade uh, tag out of New York. What's going on? Peace, everyone. Can y'all hear me? Pardon Peace, the volume. Tag. We hear you. Peace, brother. Welcome home. Appreciate that. Peace to everyone, and, and definitely appreciating what's what's going on with the discussion. And you know, since since uh, it seems to be. A, a bit of a brainstorm going on as far as um, you know, the question of Juneteenth was mentioned, and a lot of different notions as to how to bring the issue of prison slavery to light and to bring it, you know, to those who are most responsible are coming up. I just wanted to share a thought that I've had recently. It, it seems like the most um, valid space to kind of bring this out, and so. Ideally, y'all can let me know um, what you think about it, but especially with the discussion around John Punch and just looking at the the dates and the the timeline, um, one of the dates that's put forward often as regards the history of enslavement, you know, um, on this massive land, is uh, the arrival in 1619 of this uh, ship with quote unquote uh, 20 and odd Africans. Um, in 1619 in August, you know, isn't that that's like a part of the the general, um, you know, the general story that's presented around how how Africans were brought here uh, under slavery uh, initially, right? In Newport, yes, the 25. No doubt. So it just occurs to me that given that next year will be 2019, you know, that will make four straight centuries, you know, on, on this landmass of just continuous, unbroken yes. slavery, enslavement, 
out here. And it, it seems to me that, you know, that's something to really highlight and something that we could bring forward to heads to help them to know, you know, no, it, it, Juneteenth, you know, it was it was a double swindle. Not only were they, you know, attempting to continue enslavement in spite of, you know, what was being stated, et cetera, but then they pulled this second hoodwink on us, you know, and continued enslavement in the prisons. So we're talking about four four straight centuries of of this abomination, you know. Right. Uh, it it just seems to me that that that's something that maybe we could really rally around and and utilize as a you know as a moment in history to really demonstrate to to the masses what's going on and and how atrocious it is you know what i'm saying yes use juneteenth if you're an advocate an abolitionist or slavery uh anti-slavery activist this is your opportunity to contact your local organizers for juneteenth events and ask if you could be a speaker ask if you could make a presentation on the event and it's a great opportunity to explain these things Thank you, Tag. Anything else? No, I, th- I think that's that's it for now. And uh, appreciating the discussion, I would just w- once more uh, raise the fact that we're doing a welcome home out here on April 27th, uh, two years from the raid of the Bronx 120. So anyone that's able to step through to that or wants to, you know, represent that in any way, uh, very much welcome. But I appreciate the discussion. Talk to y'all soon. Hey, Max, um, I want to uh, make okay. an announcement, make an announcement, and then we'll go to Sister Elaine Max. Um, Tag, who has been for a couple of years now, Tag, uh, I'm not sure how many, maybe three, four, I'm not sure how many, has been an intern for Black Talk Media Project, which is the North Carolina-based nonprofit you know, which manages the Black Talk Radio Network, but he has stepped into the arena of podcasting, stepping from behind the scenes and uh, taking up the mic. And so I want to tell people to check out um, his podcast on blacktalkradionetwork.com. It is in the menu. It's called Pre-Intercoms, or you can look that up. P-R-E-Intercoms, like an intercom system. So, uh, Check out, show your love for uh, that podcast. He had uh, particularly um, engaging interviews uh, with a brother just recently came came home and uh, who's talking about organizing, you know, against slavery. So check out uh, Tay's uh, podcast on Black Talk Radio Network. Again, that's pre-intercoms. And I'm in agreement with Tay that every flag can rally to the fact or should be able to rally to the fact and around the fact that slavery was never abolished. And, and, you know, this gravest crime against humanity has been, um, you know, um, practiced against a people based on the melanation of their uh, of their skin. And we have the documentation to show when it started. Uh, Max, um, I yield to you. Yes, sir. And, uh, uh, Sister Elena, you were saying? Um, yes. One thing I wanted to bring attention to uh, when when the discussion was uh, about uh, the the remnants uh, remains of our ancestors that have been found on these different universities. I think um, right now we should, like Scotty was saying, use these as opportunities 
to confiscate our evidence because, like I said, here in the South, uh, our ancestors had been warring since 1526, so I don't have any proof. But just based on what I've seen and some of the research I've been doing, some of these areas are actually crime scenes. They could be mass burial grounds. We don't know because we don't have anybody doing any type of using like a forensic criminal, oh, you know, yes. criminal approach. Uh, Sister Elaine, I don't mean to interrupt. Artifacts. Sister Elaine, I don't mean to interrupt, but again, mm-hmm. this is why people should should be subscribed to Black Talk Radio Network. Now, it's been a couple of years. Maybe oldest mm-hmm. can remember, but I interviewed this guy at least three times. But there was a massacre in Louisiana of free black people, and they uh, just piled them all in the hole. You know, like mm-hmm. some of those pictures came out of Haiti after the earthquake, mass graves and, and what have you. And uh, university uh, uh, archaeology department partnered with this guy based off of it. And it's a white guy who is a reporter who heard the stories, did further e- investigation, then talked to, you know, the available records and talked to the available people who had this knowledge, and they found the mass grade, the crime scene that you was talking about. I'll try to mm-hmm. look that up. I can't remember the reporter's name, but it was out of Louisiana. And it's I, a book I would out like to that. start collecting those type of articles and collecting it. Matter of fact, I'm going to start collecting that type of information because that can support our claims, whether we submit these claims domestically or we submit them internationally. But I think we need to step up our game in advocating uh, for the, the uh, you know, abolishment of that exception part in that 13th Amendment is that we do have that support. And slavery uh, did not stop, you know, after slavery. It did not stop at all. So, and we're still like in down in Louisiana and in, in, in Mississippi, they still have slave labor. Driving through there, I still saw cotton fields where people were still picking cotton, and I assumed that they were prisoners still picking cotton. Indeed. So, we we need is we need to uh, do something. You know, yeah, all, it doesn't I'm, matter what approach we use, whether it's domestically or internationally. The bottom line is we cannot afford to wait any longer to do something. Yes, um, Max. That will be the yes, Thibodeau, the Thibodeau massacre, um, for Sister Elaine. Uh, you could okay, type in. Okay, I'm the writing thi- that down. Yeah, the Thibodeau massacre. You put that in the search engine in Black Talk Radio Networks or website. You'll find my interviews. Um, but you can just research that and find it. Smithsonian. I just pulled up an article. Smithsonian.com. The Thibodeau massacre left 60 African Americans dead and spelled the end of unionized farm labor in the South for decades. In 1887, African American cane workers in Louisiana attempted to organize, and many paid with with their lives. Uh, on November the 23rd, 1887, a mass shooting of African-American farm workers in Louisiana left some 60 dead. Bodies were dumped in unmarked graves while the white press cheered a victory against a fledgling black union. It was one of the bloodiest days in U.S. labor history, and while statues went up in public places were named for some of those involved, there is no marker for the Thibodeau massacre. But, uh, you know, if you find... 
Um, and, and oh my goodness, see Smithsonian. This is again. Mm. I'm gonna have to write their editors because <laughs> here, show, here they are saying years after the Thirteenth Amendment brought freedom, cane cutters' workers' working lives were already barely distinguishable from slavery. Well, that's because it was slavery. That's why it was barely indistinguishable. These had been convict people convicted of crimes. And then just outright, like Max was talking about in the story, you got how many thousands sitting in jails that ain't never been charged and or brought to child trial in the United States. So that's the this look up the book um Thibodeau, you spell that T H I B O D A U X. Thibodeau Massacre, Racial Violence in the 1887 Sugarcane Labor Strike. One of my dreams, if, if I may uh, get in, is to have a repository of this information. There are many organizations that are doing what you just described that I am aware of, but they do not interact together and share their information. The same thing with the abolitionists. We Every week for six years, we have been... Uh, displaying a abolitionist in profile and I've had to find them from the University of Detroit, I find them from the Black Abolitionist Archives I find them from the University of, Mich- of, uh, of Texas and all these different places but there's no central repository so you might see 400 bodies here that were lynched and then 900 here that they know about were lynched and 10,000 know, you, you know what I mean? So one of my dreams is to see a central depository and the reason there is none is because this particular topic has never been discussed at this level before. But brother, isn't that what Brother Stevens has started with his Yes, museum? he is one. As I said, it, we, there's right. a lot of different sources and each of them have different uh, names and peoples and events. So uh, hopefully one day we can start bringing this together in a single repository for people to be able to access as researchers. Um, I know we're over time, so I was hoping to be able to say a couple of things before our our time is up. The one thing that I want to talk about was we're running on a time schedule, and most people don't know it. And I talked to uh, Dr. Ansari earlier, and Elena, I don't know if you know about this circumstance, so I'll ask you directly first. Are you familiar with the Convention of States? Yes. I can't quote it word for word, but yes, you're talking about... uh... Uh, the state's obligations that they have to uh, their to their uh, constituents or to the people that they govern. Yes, I'm refer. I'm 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 referring back to it. It's coming to me now. And no, the United States is in violation of all of that. However, there's a certain framework that would be more uh, beneficial that we use, we should use as, as African descendants from my perspective, I'm no expert, yes. is the prison, that we're intergenerational prisoners of war because we are a colonized people and there are more protections under international law, under humanitarian law, the law of war and also those decolonization conventions that Dr. Ansari was referring to uh, yesterday uh, that can help us not only deal with the act itself of prison, uh, of the steel slavery that we go through, but deal with the unprincipled relationship. That's that power element, that subjugation over us in the first place that that keeps us in this 
perpetual state of of uh, servitude. Um, I'm not quite sure that you we may be talking about the same thing. The convention of states that I'm referring to. Well, well let me preface it like this. You know, when things occur, all the the components got to be in place. The stars got to align. And for the two ways to amend the Thirteenth Amendment and uh, make legalized slavery end it forever, you have to have either a convention of states or a constitutional con- a congressional con- convention. Those two things may take decade or two decades to accomplish. But right now, there has been a movement that has been going on for almost 20 years. And with the election of Trump, it gained a lot of steam. It's called the Convention of States. Their goal is to use an Article 5 convention to have uh, an opportunity to reinterpret the United States Constitution, which is what we want to do. The problem is it's funded by and run by white nationalists, white people, and uh, racist white supremacists who are embedded in our uh, government. You can look through the list of faces and you'll be lucky to find one black face. It's just that simple. They are only three states away from having a three-quarter majority of making this happen. Now, if we was to start on that process right now, it may take us 20 years. They've already done it, and they're only three states away. They claim that they're going to have enough states this year, and we have no representation in it whatsoever. People of color have no representation. Minority groups have no representation. And they are about to do the most dangerous thing you could do in any country, and that's open up your constitution for reinterpretation. They could put anything they want in there. And without representation, there would be no opposition. It is a time limit that has been put on us to take advantage of an opportunity by getting that representation in there. We're not going to stop this movement. They're going to do it. We need to be ready when they do it. And we have so much limited time. I've done, this, I've done a few interviews and, and I'm a handful of people who are aware of this and telling people about this, even though it's completely public. Anybody can see it by going to conventionofstates.org and looking. So we're on a really dangerous time schedule. And I'm hoping some of the people we work with who are running for office or in office take this opportunity to uh, get representation in this convention of states. That's the first thing I want to talk about. And I'll open up for comments after that. But there was one other thing I wanted to mention. If anybody want to comment on the convention of states? Oh, I would. I would love to be a part of that because if we could get in on that as as a as a collective group, we could really uh, go back and address some of those, like the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments, on how it reinforces our subjugation. I mean, like I said, our relationship as it is written in the Constitution is one of a disposable people. Uh, we don't even get treated as well as the vo- voluntary uh, minorities if you look at all the human rights violations and look at the numbers. So that is, I do agree, someone needs to be there. Yes. I think we been, need to be there. We the, need the reason to be there. we are not Whether, there. I don't care if they're nationalists. The reason you know, we are not there. If they're white nationalists, we need to have a conversation with them. The reason we're not there, yes. Sister Elaine, is because the system has its gatekeepers. 
running out. And I'm just yeah. call out the names, the National Action Network, you know, um, um, the Rainbow Coalition, who got the nerve the to Congressional go, Black Caucus should be all over this. The, the Congressional Black Caucus, who these people are paid by the system. They earn a butter biscuits and standard of living above everyone else. And if they're lucky, because even sometimes they are subject and made slaves of, but you know, that's why you don't, they're under all black political representation is under the control of the Clintons through the DNC. Okay. So that's why we aren't there. So maybe we had to show up as uninvited guests and pound on the doors instead of standing outside with our junk in our hand with a protest sign. Exactly. Yes. I don't think they're taking it serious, and that's the biggest mistake they could ever make. Because these people could literally say, you know what? Black people are property again. We're tired of you. And just put it in the Constitution. There's nobody to oppose anything like that. You ever heard of a runaway Constitution? That's what could happen. <laughs> you know? I mean, the states have to take these proposals or amendments back and have them ratified afterwards, but that doesn't mean they can't get put in there, and that doesn't mean they won't be ratified. So, yes, we need to be in there, particularly because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and have our voice heard. The other thing that I want to talk about was uh, decolonization. And I asked Dr. Ansari about what, if there was any models of decolonization, but I don't really need it because I've been witnessing it in my own way uh, all across the African continent. In Zimbabwe, they are nationalizing their diamond mines. In Ghana, they have built the largest refinery uh, in the world there where they're going to refine their own oil and no longer have these European hands in that process where they end up buying gas from overseas. Uh, and several other African nations are in their own way severing the ties that they have with their oppressors. Even in one, uh, I forget which one it is in South Africa, where they are taking the land back and redistributing it to the African citizens there who have been there for hundreds and thousands of years. So they're doing what they can do to decolonize. But here in America, we have to do it in a different way. And for us, I feel that not only working together with the international community, but on a national level, focusing on the 13th Amendment, that's our version of decolonization. Because the uh, things that will occur after you remove the exception clause will lead to us being able to challenge all of these different acts of slavery and human trafficking in a court. And then we can eventually start trying people who have been found guilty of crimes against humanity. You can't change anything unless you get the criminals out of positions of power. Anything else is just going to be in their favor. That's true. That's true. But he, let, hear me out with this. Yes, ma'am. Now, we're talking about decolonization. With us, with African descendants, or whoever you want to call us, I know a lot of people have issues with that. What happened was after World War II, when the United States was supposed to have been decolonizing, they failed to put African descendants on what you call a non-self-governing list. They failed to list us as a national minority. The One of the things that really hurt us is that the United States purposely put us in an ambiguous relationship where we could be used as their human capital, their labor, their source of wealth, where they could control our economy. 
they put us in a dependent relationship, a relationship of dependency and subjugation. Okay? Meanwhile, other national minorities like the the, the Native Americans, like the Alaskan natives, uh those minorities, they were put into a position where they could develop, where they could grow, where they had some form of autonomy. Um, we are going to be seeking what you call internal decolonization, where we'll be looking at demanding, not asking, but negotiating authority transfers over our own criminal justice system where we dictate the remedy where we dictate the remedy for certain outcomes and certain cases, where we dictate uh, how we rehabilitate our prisoners, where we dictate, where we go to the table to Congress and we say, you know what, we want to we want to transfer authority of those prisoners. We want those prisoners under our jurisdiction, where we change that relationship on equal footing. That is the reason why we propose creating a confederated nation state because what we found was as we are a fragmented people that's looking at our problems in individual pockets we're not coming from a place of power but when we aggregate and come together from a place of power then we can begin to put in institutions and systems to restore ourselves and restore our people and in return by us taking care of ourselves I hate to say it but we're going to make America great again because we're going to be the ones to jump start that economy we'll have access to international markets uh, people who don't want to deal with the current government they're going to want to deal with us because they're going to see something new just like they did with Obama so we are in a position as we are right now, if we come together and establish a clear national plan for African descendants in the United States, we need clear political objectives, which I totally agree that first objective should be to, number one, decolonize, because decolonize, uh, it deals with facilitating authority transfers and dealing with that broken relationship that we never established in a positive manner with the United States. Once we deal with that authority, the rest of it will fall in place. We wouldn't have to worry about their 13th Amendment because we'll have our own amendment, amendments and our own Constitution. Okay, I think what Sister we have Elaine. to come from as a place of power, and there are governments, that do have nations within nations. Matter of fact, the Lumi tribe, they went back and negotiated their treaty and came up with a compact that's similar to, I believe it's like Micronesia, you see. So the models are there. It's just that we all have to agree, is this something we need to do? I don't think as a people uh, we have been given the opportunity and the creative uh, space to come up with feasible, legitimate political objectives. I think everybody's so dis uh, disorganized. We're not on the same page. We don't we don't hear each other out. Uh, we argue, and time is running out. Time is of the essence because at some point, I believe, and this is just me, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. 
I don't believe that wall is necessarily for the Mexicans. I believe it's something uh, for something bigger to come. I think it's something to deal with our population because it is so big and we can be an internal threat. I think that wall is being built for something greater to come. And I think it has something to do with a genocide in us in mind. So we don't have time to continue to allow uh, brothers and sisters to be uh, 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 incarcerated and work like slaves in in a prison system. That says as long as that's happening, we're complicit and we're allowing it to happen. I think we need to get on the same page and start advocating internally and domestically and stop this bickering. Uh, one person's way is better than it's not that we fight on all levels with anybody who wants to eliminate these human rights abuses within the borders of the United States because white people are becoming the collateral damage to poor white people so we've got to look out for them too well I would like to say um, over the past six years I think we've laid out that plan and I'm going to disagree with you on creating some nation states on a piece of paper that the United States of America incorporated is not going to recognize. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter whether they recognize it. It's whether well, or not we recognize it. Well, whether we, or not. We, we've been recognizing their Sister, I, I let you talk. Please, please don't interrupt long. me. I held, I held my, you know, I held my comments until you were done. Um, okay. My, my point, my point is <laughs> That the first domino that needs to fall is slavery needs to be abolished. It starts there. There's documentation for that. Even creating nation states, who you filing the paperwork with? You filing it with whose courts? The only courts with any power over this land, whether we want to admit it or not, is their courts. Because we are not in a position to to we're not organized i'm not going to say we don't have power because we do have power and we have power in our numbers because if we didn't have any power they wouldn't be drawing so much energy from us through prison slavery through drafting us or forcing us into the military because of poverty through just every imaginable human rights violation so we have power and they're threatened by that power um, at, at certain times. So it would take power in the backing of other established nation states, particularly Africans or Cuba or any other body else with a military because we don't have one. Um, you know, until then, um, they don't care how we see ourselves. What matters is how they see us. And that's and that is slaves. We're all just in a pond waiting to be picked to be fished out and put into prison slavery so they can make money off our energy, our power. All right. So ending slavery after the the day after slavery ends, you know, then we can everybody can go go their way and 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 all the stuff that you name. I was in agreement with. That's what it looks like when slavery ends. I just don't see, I don't have 50 years or another 100 years. I'm like Brother Stevenson. I'm tired of seeing it to try to convince 40 million or how many ever other people who are in our collective situation to sign on to some nation state and then organize an army. That's not going to happen in this surveillance state. 
okay? It, it's just not going to happen. So we are forced to go through their course and lose documentation and legal arguments and not out just their course, but the international course. But I would submit they are too also controlling those courts uh, where they where they can. So like Malcolm said, we have to have support outside of this nation. And that's why he went to Africa to build bridges to do that commerce and, and all of that. And we can achieve, I am a black nationalist and we can achieve autonomy but the quickest way to do that is simply for us to do a reverse migration back to the states that we migrated from for jobs. Come back from the West, come back from the Midwest, come back from the North, come back down South to these coastal communities where we are the majority. The majority rules in, in the states and then we, can cre- then we can create that autonomous atmosphere. States have some of that power to conduct commerce and then when we're strong enough, I intimate again where we will have a national guard and that all that military equipment under our control, then we will be ready to succeed or, or ready for violent confrontation if if it if if the people vote to go that go that way. But the page one, you know, being on the same page, I gotta reiterate, I I'm I'm with Tag. All of this is we can document is tied to the status of slavery being legal. And they make you make you a slave and they intimidate you as a free person and saying, if you say anything, if you rise up for what we doing to these slaves, then we'll make you a slave too, or we'll lynch you or we'll shoot you down in the streets. No, we can't. We can't be afraid, afraid of that. We got to press on. And and so I, I yield the floor to Max. The first domino yes. is the thirteen. Is the thirteen? If we can just agree that slavery was never abolished, and we can end, and we all on the same page of that being the first domino to tip, then we can hash out these other issues of what it would where it would look like when we in control of the system. Okay. I, I feel you on that. That's the five-state solution that you were referring to by Republic of New Africa. And I agree that that could be a successful solution, too, particularly if we're talking about majority rules, you know what I mean, and giving us our own territories. I mean, we don't have to kick anybody out. We just have to move here. There's plenty of room, you know, for anybody to come. And they know, you like, know, they always move out <laughs> when we move in. So. Will. We heard a white flight many times, haven't we? Uh, you know, but that's okay. If that's what you want to do, go ahead. If you want to stay, stay. Just don't, you know, impede what we're trying to accomplish. In any case, I would want nothing more than to see us on the same page, on one accord, and unified. But here we are with, as Scotty said, we do have some power. The abolitionist movement is no small movement. It's a real movement. And we've had many successes in court cases using RICO charges. We've addressed the United Nations. We have people in Congress and in the Senate on our side. I've even lobbied potential presidents like uh, Sanders, who, uh, because of uh, those type of efforts, brought out the Justice is Not for Sale bill of 2016 or 2015, which basically banned private prisons from the United States and gave them two two years to pack up their crap and go. So, you know, uh, I want nothing more than to see us all on the same page, whether it's with a political movement that exists, a political movement we create, or an international movement bringing us all together. But I'm not going nowhere unless somebody meets my demands. And my demands is this. Slavery is the problem. And if it's not at the top of your list, I'm not coming. 
And a lot of people feel like that. If you can put it as the number two thing or the number five thing and the number 12 thing, like it is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, number four, if you can do that, then I'm not coming. It's got to be at the top. We did the same thing with the million uh, black conscious voters who addressed us and said, you, you have a lot of people following you and we'd like you guys to be a member of what we're doing. And Scotty said, only if you're talking about the 13th Amendment. And guess what? They put the 13th Amendment right up there at the top of their list. But I see the floor. And uh, if anybody wants to say anything after that. We got about seven well, minutes, seven minutes. My position is we need to be working on all of it simultaneously. It's no either or. There's no first or second. You know, we've been in this condition for centuries. So we need to move expeditiously. I say decolonizing, dealing with this uh, unprincipled relationship, and also working towards abolishing slavery and the police brutality. I don't think it's a sequence in what we need to be doing. It's just we need to be doing something, period. It's not. So for me to say I prioritize my fight over... Uh, abolishing the 13th Amendment, I would be doing myself a, a big disservice because from where I it, it all falls in the same, it's all under the same umbrella. All those things that you mentioned are s- symptoms of human trafficking and slavery. The police brutality, the injustice in the courts, uh, the racism, the institutional racism, the uh, for-profit prisons are all symptoms of modern-day slavery this and human trafficking. And you are correct. You would be doing yourself a disservice if you said, let me put amending the 13th at the top of my list because that's not what is at the top of our list. What is at the top of our list is ending slavery by any means necessary and freeing close to... Uh, you got 1.5 million in prisons and jails and eight, uh, 1.5 million in state prisons and federal prisons and 8 million in jails who need to be free today. They're dying, they're being raped, they're being abused, they're being brutalized, and all of these human rights violations are happening to them as we speak. And they're powering our enemies. That's where all the profit and the power, we have power, and they're stealing it. That's our army in the prisons. And the only nonviolent means to free them is to tip that legal domino which is being more recognized. We're pushing into the international community and the UN. We got people talking to them, but recognizing that this is an ongoing crime as it has been pointed out for four centuries. That's our relationship as, as victims of slavery, regard, regardless of our nationality, ethnicity, you know, religion or whatever. We're victims of slavery. Uh, Max, we got to wrap it up. Our conference actually ended I'm surprised, but, you know, our our audio is still on, so it's going out to our listening audience uh, through the uh, radio station, but we do need to wrap it up. I think the first time we reached that point, Scotty, in six years. Yeah, we need to wrap it up, and and, (laughs) uh, I'm sorry that we didn't get to our regular segments, but definitely those have been shared on New Abolitionist Radio and in the Abolitionist Group on BTR Community. But I want to thank yeah. everyone for their input. I'll go into my final comment. I want to thank our callers and, and everyone for their input. I think Tag correctly uh, labeled it brainstorming. And, you know, we need more of that. We need to lay the facts out on the table, the options, 
and let the people decide. Max, I yield to you. Uh, I would like to just ask if uh, Sister Elena would have any final comments since we're out of time um, for the evening. Well, I think it's been an excellent uh, dialogue, excellent conversation, much needed. And um, if you need any assistance uh, filing anything domestically or need any research done in the area, just let me know because uh, each treaty body has a commission, a quasi-juridical commission that we could be writing to, that we could be uh, advocating for the uh, abolishment of that 13th Amendment and of, of the prison slavery that we're doing over here in the United States. And with that, I yield the floor. Thank you very much. Uh, it was my original intention to read a poem uh, tonight to close out the program. Uh, it would take about two minutes. <clears throat> Scotty, is there enough time for that, or should I just wrap it exactly up with my Exactly two minutes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Frederick Douglass. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as Uh-oh, looks like we lost Max and we ran out of time on the conference line. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in to New Abolitionist Radio. Make sure you, if you uh, thought the podcast is, or the broadcast is constructive, share the podcast uh, with, with your friends on social media. This is Scotty Reed for Max signing off. And as Max always, always said, uh, always says abolition is a reason for a revolution. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep